Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Western philosophy has long been the province of old white men. Scan most any standard intro to philosophy course load and you'll see it yourself. Teachings of white philosophers compose the political fabric of our society. Philosopher Charles W. Mills pointed out that those liberal frameworks missed a key detail, white supremacy. So my lecture this evening seeks to address the issue of racial justice and in the process to look also at the question of why the subject has been so little addressed in Western and more specifically American political philosophy. For it is not as if the demand for racial justice is a new one. That's how Mills opened a 2020 lecture called Theorizing Racial Justice. He cites Black Lives Matter, the civil rights movement, and anti-imperialism efforts as examples of this work happening in the real world. And then? Despite, or should that be because of, this history and the larger history of modern Western imperialism and conquest in which it is embedded, white American political philosophers in particular and white Western political philosophers more generally, have almost completely ignored the subject. Mills died last week at the age of 70. He was best known for his book, The Racial Contract. He was born in the UK and grew up in Jamaica, where he studied physics at the University of the West Indies. But during a period of intense political struggle in Jamaica in the 1970s, he pivoted to graduate studies in philosophy and was immediately bewildered. He couldn't square the philosopher John Rawls describing society as a cooperative venture for mutual advantage with the colonial legacy of Jamaica and the West. But Mills didn't just want to tear liberalism down. He wanted to reshape it. In his words, create the liberalism that should have been, says Neil Roberts, professor of philosophy at Williams College. What does it mean to live in an equal society? What does it mean to be free? These are all questions that Mills is saying that the Western tradition, what he would call kind of white political theory, has talked about for centuries, but the issues of, of kind of race in relation to those questions gets eclipsed. Many in the field, including Roberts, have remembered Mills for his humanity in addition to his intellect, for opening the door to younger black philosophers and supporting their growth. Charles W. Mills' legacy in theory and practice is one of chipping away at the biases of history's oldest tradition without abandoning its integrity. I'm a letter writer and booster of the post office. Both my father and uncle, now deceased, were career postal workers. The United States Postal Service is the only delivery service that delivers to every single household in the U.S., in the cities and remote areas where other delivery services will not go. But USPS is struggling not to sink under the weight of old economic pressures and new workforce mandates. Officially, USPS guarantees a one- to three-day delivery of first-class mail. But in recent years, the service has been under fire for failing to meet that standard. Here in the GBH newsroom, we decided to test the speediness of the U.S. mail. On April 5th, my fellow reporters, editors, and hosts simultaneously mailed 100 letters to 38 states. Just over half of the letters arrived within the one- to three-day window, received by friends and family living in small towns, urban centers, and suburban cities. Three weeks later, the 100th one was still missing. 
The results of our non-scientific study were somewhat disappointing, though perhaps not surprising. And the pandemic shutdown also contributed to the Postal Service's recent spotty delivery record. The criticism about the post office has been brutal. Former President Donald Trump called USPS a joke and pushed to privatize it. Now deliveries are about to get even slower. As of October 1st, this Friday, postal workers will be ordered to deliberately slow down mail delivery. Postal workers fought the changes, which will push the one to three day first class mail delivery to a routine one to five days. It's all part of the controversial 10 year reform read cost cutting plan overseen by Trump major donor Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, which includes deep slashes in staff overtime and eliminating some mail sorting machines, which expedite the overall process. For the record, taxpayer monies do not fund the post office. Its only income is from stamps and package delivery. I rushed to buy up a bunch of forever stamps before the last hike in August, when the price of forever stamps rose to 58 cents. But pricier stamps alone can't replace revenue lost, for example, from the pandemic-caused steep drop in business mail. At a recent USPS Board of Governors meeting, DeJoy acknowledged the slowdown as part of some uncomfortable changes. Public comments solicited by the service were overwhelmingly negative, and recent President Biden appointee to the Postal Service Board, Ron Stroman, was also bluntly critical, saying the changes are not justified by the relatively low financial return. Stroman, who is also a former deputy postmaster general, warned that the brunt of the deliberate slowdown would impact low-income households and small businesses in regional areas, including Florida, Texas, Maine, and central areas of the country. It doesn't take a math whiz to calculate that more expensive stamps and Postmaster DeJoy's proposed deep slashes to service and staff will likely add to more pressure on the service. He was in charge when equipment removal and staffing changes impacted the post office's ability to handle the flood of mail-in ballots. DeJoy needs to be reined in, and Congress needs to vote to relieve the USPS of its crushing debt caused by Congress's own act requiring USPS to prepay pension retiree health benefits 75 years into the future. Plus, I'm suspicious that DeJoy is on a mission to lead the service to its demise so he can put it in the hands of private contractors. The United States Postal Service is a tentpole of American democracy and a major cog in the country's supply chain, delivering medicines, ballots, paychecks. I worry that this deliberate slowdown will turn off some postal customers who can afford to choose alternative services, further reducing stamp-related revenue. By the way, the one outstanding letter in our newsroom experiment did finally arrive one month after mailing. Here's hoping that is not an example of what we can expect now. Callie Crossley, GBH, Boston's local NPR. Elders saying everything's a nail to a hammer and niggas can't spell, but we know I Instagram. Instagram has a harmful impact on some teenagers, and Facebook, the app's owner, knows it. That's according to reporting from the Wall Street Journal earlier this month, which showed that the company's internal research proved that Instagram worsens body image issues and erodes mental health, especially for teenage girls. Destiny Adams is a senior at Oklahoma State University, and she wrote a piece for Time this week sharing her own experience of how the app has impacted her mental health, and she's going to talk about it with us. Hello. Hi. 
I mean, you were just 13 when you created your first Instagram account. What were you seeing on the app and how did it shape the way you thought you should look? So on the app, I was seeing a lot of girls in like heavy makeup. I think that was the age of like the swoop bang <laughs> and like the straightening your hair if it was curly. Um, I just remember wanting to be like the girls that I saw that were getting a lot of likes. You write that after years of trying to reach Instagram's impossible standards, you began to develop an overwhelming fear of rejection and uneasiness. Can you say more about what that looked like in your daily life? Being a dark-skinned Black girl, I write about wearing makeup that was too light for my dark skin complexion. Um, I grew up in a suburb in Edmond, Oklahoma, and that is just like predominantly white neighborhood. And so it was hard to find makeup that matched my skin complexion. Mm. Uh, it was it was hard. I just didn't fit into what Instagram standards were at that point. And so that caused a lot of uneasiness. Yeah, how was it when you would post a picture? What happened after you would post a picture of yourself? So I would post a picture and I would gain likes. And the more I edited my picture, the more likes I found that I would get. If I get this amount of likes, then I'm worthy. Or if I get this amount of likes, then my peers will comment on it. And if you don't get the certain amount of likes that you think that you're going to get, it makes you feel a little rejected. And it's kind of overwhelming. This month you were diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. And I understand that the tipping point that made you want to seek out help was something that actually happened on Instagram. Can you tell us about that? So Instagram is supposed to be a place where you can share different points in your life. But that's not exactly what it is anymore. It's just you share what looks good. You share the ups. You only see the ups. And so not really thinking about that. I shared a post about losing my dad and the grief behind that. And I remember editing it days after, like my caption days after, because I was just like, it's a little too sad. I want to have an optimistic approach so people think that I'm okay, even though I wasn't and it was a heavy subject. And that was when I realized that my relationship with Instagram was a problem. Hmm. I shouldn't have been that anxious to share what I was going through, but I definitely was. And what did your doctor tell you about that when you got your diagnosis? My doctor said that the pressure I feel to present myself as something other than my authentic self in that moment was a key factor to my diagnosis. It's hard because you can't stay off of Instagram in this generation. Instagram is a place where I am in contact with peers and I'm in contact with future employers. It's not something that I can just delete. And I think that would make me even more anxious because I, I'd feel like I'm missing out on something. But I just try to not so much like critique what I post and not overthink what I'm posting and what I'm saying. And I try to leave my phone alone and not just watch the notifications pop up and see who commented and see who liked it and see who didn't like it. But it is a process because I was just diagnosed this month. So I got a long way to go. But I think the first step to that is realizing that you have a problem and pinpointing it and then working through that. 
That's Destiny Adams, a senior at Oklahoma State University who's been writing about the negative mental health impacts of Instagram on her generation. Thank you very much. Thank you. reports that children and adults who are obese are as much as three times more likely to be hospitalized with COVID-19. They're also more likely to die from the coronavirus. Yet we hear little from public health officials about these risks and the urgency for the population to be vaccinated. WFAE's Claire Donnelly reports. The CDC statistics are no surprise to Dr. Eugene Dougherty. He says the vast majority of children with COVID-19 in the intensive care unit where he works are obese. At least nine out of 10 patients that we're seeing who have who are sick enough, especially to be in the ICUs throughout the state, where obesity plays a part in this. Dougherty is with Novant Health's Hemby Children's Hospital in Charlotte. He says having obesity puts both children and adults at higher risk of getting really sick with COVID. The CDC says obesity may triple the risk of COVID hospitalization. And a recent report from the World Obesity Federation shows death rates from COVID-19 have been 10 times higher in countries where more than half of the population is overweight. So I think obesity has been fascinatingly ignored in this epidemic. Monica Gandhi is an infectious disease specialist at the University of California at San Francisco. She says public health officials have often talked about the risk that COVID poses to older people, but she says obesity is different. It could be that there's an element of, well, does that blame the victim? With obesity, it seemed like it was just simply not discussed, and it's so important. Former Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Scott Gottlieb agrees. It's a fair point because it, it's hard. This is the challenge with public health messaging. I mean, this is it's true that a lot of the dialogue is around risk factors broadly, and they haven't been clearly enumerated. In North Carolina and Mecklenburg County, officials rarely specifically mention obesity when talking about COVID-19. A WFAE review of statewide coronavirus press briefings found that the most recent mention of obesity by State Health Secretary Mandy Cohen was in March. And here's Mecklenburg County's health director, Gibby Harris, this month talking about unvaccinated people who have died. Many of those, 95 percent, were among those with underlying chronic conditions. So we know um, that how important the vaccines are, especially for those folks with underlying chronic conditions. But the one thing that I do want to emphasize is we have children that fit into that category and that have underlying chronic conditions. Harris did not name those chronic conditions and has rarely mentioned obesity specifically. But at least 76 people who died in Mecklenburg County over the past six months had obesity, diabetes, or hypertension, according to county health department data. Both diabetes and hypertension are often chronic conditions of obesity. That's out of the roughly 140 deaths in people 65 and younger with known chronic conditions. Asthma was only listed as an underlying cause in five deaths. 
Mecklenburg County health officials often talk about trying to get more vaccines to people in racial and ethnic groups. But County Medical Director Meg Sullivan says they haven't focused on encouraging people with chronic conditions like obesity to get vaccinated. The honest answer is I'm not sure if there has been that specific messaging um, to the extent that it needs to be. Targeting those groups may be especially important going forward. Studies show the rate of obesity for both adults and children has increased because of the pandemic. Dr. Daniel Donner is with Novant's Pediatric South Park Clinic. We have had patients that are in the adolescent age range who have been newly obese that we've had to send to the hospital because of severe COVID symptoms or to prevent severe COVID symptoms. Donner says COVID shutdowns caused many kids who had been at a healthy weight to suddenly fall into the overweight or obese range. He says there are many reasons why, with parents working from home, many ordered more carryout food, and children got less exercise when they were stuck at home. A lot of kids were not going to the playgrounds. A lot of kids were not engaged in the sports that they used to play or participating in club activities or even for fear of walking around their own neighborhoods. A recent CDC study found that the rate of increase in body mass index in a group of roughly 432,000 children doubled during the pandemic compared to a pre-pandemic period. And 42% of Americans said they had gained more weight than intended, 29 pounds on average, according to a March survey from the American Psychological Association. For WFAE News, I'm Claire Donnelly. He really loved me. He was so fat. <laughs> you saw how fat he was. I don't care what I brought in this house. He just eat it up. I don't care what it was I brought in here. I bring some Popeye's chicken. That boy eat the whole thing. Before I even get a chance to get a bite of the chicken, he just eat up. He would eat his little ass off. You ain't ever seen nobody eat like Gumballs, he made me take him over, over up there to the Super yeah. Kmart, yeah. and he put them quarters in that gumball. Yeah. He had to wait till he get the red gumball. He, to, he always had to get the red gumball. You sound like a character, I guess. Get that red gumball, and he just eat all that red gumball. Nutrition status definitely contributes to your immune system and how well it works. And it's an important strategy in helping us to maybe not necessarily stop us from getting COVID, um, but definitely impact the severity, most likely. Of course, we don't know for sure because there haven't been studies about all of these things. But we do know nutrition status does impact our body's ability to respond to infections, viruses, and things like that. 
what could a person do to strengthen their immune system? Making sure that you're eating a balanced diet is number one. Proteins and starches and vegetables and fruits at all of your meals can contribute different vitamins, micronutrients. Um, getting them from your food is a really good idea. Is there any particular vitamin that stands out? The main vitamins that we've heard most about are things like vitamin D3, vitamin C, zinc, Vitamin D3 is a very important vitamin in supporting our immune system, but when we eat foods that have vitamin D, usually it is required to be converted into the active form by getting sunlight during the day and things like that. But you can also take a supplement of vitamin D3, but we want to make sure that we're having a dual approach, right? We're wanting to get foods that are that have vitamin D like mushrooms um, and also um, if, if needed take a supplement. I have to ask because I understand that you've had a bout with COVID. Yes I got COVID in late December um, and it has been a very rough road I'm not gonna lie. I've got a lot of things going on and you know I was pretty well nourished doing a lot of supplementation before I got COVID. That's probably why I did not get more severe COVID. I did have a severe case of COVID and I'm struggling with long COVID, wondering if it's going to end anytime soon. <laughs> but, you know, as far as long COVID goes, there are so many different theories and everyone is so different. So a lot of people are having different experiences, but there are a lot of um, recurring themes, which is very interesting. The reason I was asking, I was just curious um, how what you know about nutrition is helping you through all of this. I think the main thing that is helping me is having a balanced approach. Things like eating consistently, getting good, a good amount of vitamins and minerals from your food. Um, if you can't necessarily eat, then drinking protein shakes, things like that. And also trying to get outside because of the sunlight. It helps your mental health as much as it helps the rest of your health. That being said, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that everyone who has COVID has an inflammatory problem. Sometimes the inflammation attacks different parts of your body. One thing that is very important if you do have long COVID is to approach your food with an anti-inflammatory mindset. Reducing things like added sugars, reducing um, super starchy, ultra processed foods, reducing the sugary drinks and things like that will really help your body be able to calm down any inflammation that exists and or just not contribute more inflammation to a problem that already exists. So paying attention to this isn't a cure. Right. But it's, what, maybe one tool in the arsenal? Yes, you're right. It's, I wish there was a magic fix. I would buy it right now. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have not had COVID, then is this another great excuse to maintain that balanced diet? Eating an anti-inflammatory diet is going to help you no matter what. It's also going to help you if you happen to get COVID and you have not been eating an, an inflammatory kind of high um, sugar, high starch kind of diet. So it's definitely going to help you. Now, do we want to be obsessed with the foods that we're eating and um, kind of trying to plan every single thing and freak out about, you know, not having something that we want? Not necessarily. You know me. I'm always going to tell you it's a balance. You want to like make sure that you're maintaining good balance in every area of your life, including the food that you eat. Rachel Trammell, thank you for being with me. Thank you, Sam. It's good to talk with you. You, you know, Ben, you've been observing all of this for quite some time. Um, people are talking right now as if 
there's going to be like a major change, like a major impro improvement uh, with regards to racism, because there's a lot of attention focused on the police and everything right now. Um, does this, does this to you, like from everything that you've been seeing, does it look like, Hey, this is, we seen are seen it all before, seen it before. Okay. Yeah. This is not new to you. This is not like none of it. None of it. Okay. <laughs> it's all old stuff. I mean, rehash over and over again, talked about the same way. Look at the current commission report. You got a copy of that? Yes. I heard you on talk tainment. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, get it. Yeah. Well, just read through it. Just glance through it. You don't even have to read the whole thing. It's a big, thick report, but it's all the same thing. Same thing they're saying now, the same thing they were saying in 1968. I agree. I, I read, when I heard you, I think that was last week when you brought that up, I went and I was able to get a copy of the current report and I started yeah. flipping through it and they were talking about how, uh, black people were upset about the way that they cover the uh, the incidents. Oh the yeah, I mean, I everything said... everything from A to Z, all about the jobs and housing, and right. you know, and and you know, and uh, the, how many people in jail. I mean, and on and on and on. I mean, you know, it was exactly. The, I was just like that. Something right there <laughs> would be enough for me to be like, wait a minute, we're just saying the same thing. Over. Yeah, you might as well, you, all these people are having the meetings and whatnot, all they got to do is just haul out that same report <laughs> and just read from it. And, this, and they can entertain each other with that with, with those reports because they have already done that work over and over again. I agree. I agree. I said, I said they, racists, they are very skilled at making it seem like we're making progress and it's improvement and things like that. And it's just the same thing like over and over and over and over like uh it, it was even even that like do you have a theory on why more black people haven't caught like wait a minute this is just this is the same thing we said no very simple not understanding white supremacy that's all it is hmm. if you don't understand white supremacy i mean this is what's going to be happening from now on, over and over again Acknowledging and confronting racism in America did not start in 2020 with the nationwide protests over police brutality and the glaring inequalities highlighted by the COVID pandemic. But the extraordinary events of the past months have jolted many in the nation into wider, perhaps more open discussions. This might surprise some people, but there was a similar moment more than 50 years ago when a U.S. government commission published a report that addressed racism in the United States in a way that sent shockwaves through the nation. The Kerner Commission's 11 members were appointed by President Johnson to investigate the root causes of the unrest that swept much of the country in the summer of 1967. That's when dozens of American cities and towns were rocked by protests against racial discrimination. At the time, many white Americans were quick to blame the unrest on black militants or other agitators, everything but racism. That was until the commission released its report in March of 1968. We're going to hear now from one of that report's authors, Fred Harris. At the time, he was a U.S. senator from Oklahoma. Now, at 90 years old, he is the sole surviving member of the Kerner Commission. His recollections come to us in a story produced by Radio Diaries as part of their series, Last Witness. The 1,100 National Guardsmen have been rushed in to protect police. Looters carry off thousands of dollars of worth of goods with a gay sort of leisure. The summer of 1967, the whole news was all these burnings and reports about shooting fire people and so forth. Every night, every day, all summer long, 
everywhere, it seemed like. This is one of dozens of fires which raged through the night in Detroit. These firemen have been here half an hour, and the flames are still licking toward this gasoline station. This is going to happen all over America. It's going to be a hot world, not a hot summer. It's a hot world. People were frightened, puzzled, and scared, and mad, and looking for some kind of explanation. It wasn't long after that that uh, we were in our living room, and my youngest daughter, who was then, I think, about in the second or third grade, Laura, came running out of the kitchen, and she said, Daddy, President Johnson is on the phone for you. I said, well, is it the president or is it a secretary? She said, no, he said, this is President Johnson. Let me talk to your daddy. <laughs> so I went into the kitchen and took the wall telephone, standing at attention. Uh, yes, sir, Mr. President. And he said, Fred, I hope you're going to watch television. I'm going to point that commission you've been talking about. He said, and another thing, Fred, I want you to remember that you're a Johnson man. I said, yes, sir, I am a Johnson man. He said, if you forget it, I'm going to take my pocket knife and cut your blank off. He did not say blank. <laughs> my fellow Americans, we have endured a week such as no nation should live through, a time of violence and tragedy. I am tonight appointing a special advisory commission on civil disorders. Well, he said it this way. Answer three questions. What happened? Why did it happen? And what can be done to prevent it from happening again and again? Sometimes various administrations have set up commissions that were expected to put the stamp of approval on what the administration believed. This is not such a commission. Here's the way the Kerner Commission got started. We sent teams out to every one of these riot cities like Detroit or Newark or Cincinnati to actually talk to the people themselves. We were in suits and ties, white guys in suits, going out and walking out around and just talking to ordinary people. I spent one morning in a black barber shop in Milwaukee. The young people were coming and their young men were people who had themselves come from the South. Sort of to break the ice, the first question I was asking to start with was, uh, do you see more discrimination here in Milwaukee or less than uh, you saw back home in Jackson? And it puzzled these young men. And I finally figured out why. Is in Milwaukee they didn't see any white people. There was more rigid segregation in Milwaukee than there was in those southern cities where they had come from. Families were living in really terrible conditions, awful housing, no jobs, and almost criminally inferior schools. I think for all of us, all of us commissioners traveling around the country like that, talking to actual people in the right cities, that turned out to be a really searing experience. Good evening. This is Harry Reisner. March 1, 1968, the Kerner Report was officially released. The president told us to tell the truth, and that's what we did. The president's special commission on civil disorders has confronted the American people with a new shock to our national sense of well-being. 
a charge of white racism, national in scale, terrible in its effects. Now, nobody had ever used the word, certainly nobody in the government had ever used the word racism before. We thought that was important. More than 1,400 pages of testimony, findings, conclusions. Our nation, says the report, is moving toward two separate societies, black and white, separate but unequal. Particularly for young black people. We wanted to say to them, you're not crazy. There is systemic racism in this country. The president is well aware of what the report contains, but we have heard nothing from the White House yet. We set up a meeting with President Johnson, but then uh, we were notified that Johnson had canceled the meeting. He, he was shocked and uh, dismayed by our report. The Kerner Commission made a very exhaustive study and spent a couple of million dollars. Johnson recorded his telephone conversations. But they recommended that I spend 80 million and I got no place to get the 80. I can't borrow it. I can't tax it. I can't get a tax bill of any kind. It really hurt his feelings. Here he had done more against poverty and against racism than any president in history before or since. Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 65. And people like him, I think, thought, well, God, I thought we... I thought we solved all that. Uh, every time you appoint one of these committees, you get more than you can do anything about. We didn't think we ought to limit what we said by what was practical. Who the hell knows what's practical? I felt so strongly about what needed to be done and what massive change was needed. But we never were able to get across what the conditions that people were living in were to a big part of the country. Didn't feel it in their stomach like we did. People like my dad. My dad, for example, he loved me, of course. But the way my dad heard the commission report was this. Mr. Harris, out of the goodness of your heart, you ought to pay more taxes to help poor black people who are rioting in Detroit. And my dad's reaction was, to hell with that. People don't want to be called racist, but racism permeates everything about America, and we can't really understand the way our law system works and so forth unless we uh, talk about race. All these years later, 53 years later, if we'd just do now what the Kerner Commission recommended, we could change things. Fred Harris served in the U.S. Senate until 1973. Today, he is the last surviving member of the Kerner Commission. See you, James, and this is a fascinating story. Nice to be back. Yeah, uh, Adewale is a uh, very interesting human being. Well, tell us a little bit about him. Sure. So Ottawa joined the DA's office in 2008. Uh, he's been a prosecutor there about, or had been a prosecutor there for about 12 years. Uh, you know, middle child of the Nigerian immigrants, grew up in Brooklyn, and kind of got very interested in the legal field from a young age uh, during the O.J. Simpson trial. He said he distinctly remembers being seven or eight years old, I believe, watching the closing arguments uh, during the O.J. trial from Johnny Cochran, and he was just taken aback at this idea of this, you know, black prosecutor had now gone over the defense side and was giving this really 
strong, intense argument about racism and policing, which was not something being discussed as much now as it was back in 94. And he felt like uh, by working in the DA's office as a black man, he could do some good. Yeah, he had um, he had said he conferred with a number of his law school friends, a number of friends who become public defenders. And there was this idea in their mind. He had actually initially flown here and came out here taking an interview with the public defender's office and then kind of reversed reversed course and went over to the prosecutor's office because he believed he could make a difference. And there were not that many black prosecutors in the office at the time. So what was it that soured him on the inner workings of the DA's office? He, you know, he described a, a pretty long laundry list of complaints. It was a lot of frustrations over the course of years. He felt he was racially discriminated against by supervisors. He felt charges were, in many cases, overfiled against minority defendants. Uh, he had a lot of frustrations with prosecutors not either not wanting to hold police accountable in misconduct cases or not pressing them when in presenting cases, in, at least out of Wally's opinion, they were lying or obfuscating facts. Uh, he really kind of, you know, hit his breaking point, it sounds like, when he was working in the Pomona courthouse and he had this one supervisor who he believed was purposely giving him uh, cases he couldn't win or cases that would need to be pled out uh, in order pretty much just to hurt his overall you know, kind of performance evaluations and prevent him from being promoted. How many posts did he make and what was the first one? Uh, it was about a dozen in total. They were on the website Medium all, you know, until the end anyway, until he outs himself uh, under the alias Spooky Brown. The first case he wrote about in four parts um, was in, involved a defendant named Eric Taylor, who was arrested by the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, I believe, in 2009. He was on parole. He had rolled the stop sign and been pulled over. And because he was uh, a probationer at the time anyway, uh, the Sheriff's Department didn't need a reason to search his home. So they did. And they claimed they found a gun. Uh, ammunition and a significant amount of marijuana underneath it. As Ottawale gets the case and starts looking into it and starts looking uh, into some of the photo evidence that's been submitted, he notices the couch is level to the floor. It's, there is no room. So there is no way you could have found a gun, drugs, bullet. It just would not have fit. And the laws of space and time would not have allowed for this, uh, as Ottawale put it. So when he confronted the deputies, they offered a slightly modified version of their story. He ultimately didn't believe them. And as a result, um, the case was dismissed uh, basically in the interest of justice. And the L.A. Times did confirm the video that was taken when the house was searched and everything was included except the moment that they found the shoebox that had supposedly, allegedly uh, the gun in it, right? Yeah, I got to look at the video evidence in the case. There were interviews with Taylor. There were interviews with his mother and sister who were both there at that time. There are portions of the search film, but yeah, at no, for some reason, at no point is the, the recovery of the contraband items is not captured on, on video. There was another case he wrote about that really, uh, he said, was a result of a feud he was having with his supervisor that could have landed a man in jail for life? Right. This is towards the end of Ottawa's career. I believe this is 2016 or 2017. He was prosecuting a case, uh, a road rage case. No one was injured, but a man had, uh, I think, either caused a small vehicle collision and was screaming at a female motorist. Uh, he had a, a somewhat lengthy criminal record, so he was facing life in prison under the three strikes law, I believe. He had, Ottawale said he received uh, approval from his supervisor. This is the supervisor he's accused of racial discrimination that I mentioned earlier, that he has the feud with. Um, so he says he's obtained permission to give this guy a plea deal for 17 years. As he goes to make the plea offer, uh, he is then contacted by a different supervisor telling him he no longer has permission 
he has to withdraw the offer. The case gets brought before a jury and there is a conviction. So the man was going to otherwise take, have to face life in prison, even though he accepted this deal. Um, fast forward, there's about a year's worth of internal investigation inside the DA's office into this matter. Ultimately, a different supervisor allows the deal to go through and, yes, spares the man from life imprisonment on this crime that he was trying to take a lesser plea to. Uh, that supervisor, meanwhile, uh, ultimately resigned in disgrace due to a laundry list of discrimination allegations related to and unrelated to Ottawa. He resigned shortly before George Gascon took over in uh, the office of DA. Before I let you go, James, uh, the nom de plume, Spooky Brown, explain and what's next for Ottawa. So Ottawa said he developed the Spooky Brown moniker from a 1969 spy novel. It's called The Spook Who Sat by the Door. It had to do with uh, a fictional account of the CIA's first uh, black agent who basically uses the counterintelligence skills they, they trained him with to then become a revolutionary and aid black communities. Um, Ottawa, obviously, there's also something of a slur related to that nickname. And Ottawa did want to kind of you know have that front and center, given the discrimination allegations he was writing about. Uh, he did resign in, I believe, late October, early November, just before the election. And now he's working in the education field, trying to actually get a uh, school built, I believe, in the Bay Area. James Queeley, another fascinating story, a column one for the L.A. Times. Thank you. Yeah, other big story at 3 o'clock. After nearly a century, California making amends for a well-known part of its racist past. Governor Newsom signed a law allowing the transfer of Bruce's Beach. And that property will go to the heirs of the black couple who built it. Eyewitness News reporter Carlos Grandes joins us live from Manhattan Beach with more. Carlos? Well, that's right. A few hours ago, Governor Gavin Newsom did sign the bill that could allow ownership of this beach to be transferred to the Bruce family. The land was taken away from them back in 1924. Now, the family bought it in the early part of the 20th century for about $1,200. Now it could be worth $75 million. A beautiful sunny day for being at the beach. It's also a day of change that took almost 100 years. This is, represents a change in thinking, a whole new way of doing things, and a, whole, a much better example for our children going forward. Today, the governor signed the bill that allows Los Angeles County to begin the process to return Bruce's Beach to the families of its original owners. To be here, not just for the descendants of the Bruce family, but for all of those families torn asunder yes. because of racism. Bruce's Beach belonged to Willa and Charles Bruce. They bought it in 1912 and built a resort catering to black residents. It became a target, however. The Bruce's and their customers were harassed and threatened by white neighbors, including the KKK. State Senator Steve Bradford, who authored the bill, talked about what the Bruce family went through. And despite all the racial taunts to KKK, the harassment, the burning of their facilities, the taunting and the harassment of their guests, they survived and flourished for 12 years. Eventually, the city of Manhattan Beach seized the property in 1924 using eminent domain. They claimed it was to build a park. The law was used to steal this property 100 years ago, and the law today will give it back. Yeah. The beach was later transferred to the state, and in 1995, it was transferred back to Los Angeles County. The state, however, put restrictions on the land, preventing the county from transferring the property. The bill now changes those restrictions. Chief Dwayne Yellowfeather is a Bruce family descendant. This is something that's uh, been 97 years in coming for our family. Uh, the Bruce family finally gets a chance to breathe a little. Uh, this is the first step in the uh, getting the, our demands met. Restoration of the land was the first one. The Bruce's have found mercy 
mercy and the unfailing love of Jesus Christ, and may his name be honored forever by my family. And Supervisor Janice Hahn says that tomorrow she's going to file a motion so that the county can prepare to accept the amended deed from the state and also to identify the legal heirs of the Bruce family. Well, see, it's like making gorillas comfortable in a cage or monkeys or pandas. You still got them in a cage, but they're comfortable. See, so give him some bling bling. It's like giving an animal a brand new car and training the animal to ride up and down the street in it. And then you stand back and point at the animal. Like one white man said in the late 1950s, he said he doesn't care what kind of car a Negro has. He said he's still a nigger. And when he rides by, in a shiny car, to him, it's just a monkey in a car. White people built a car, put a monkey in it, trained the monkey to drive the car, so now you're looking at a monkey in a car. Some of you may have had the unfortunate experience of butting heads with a difficult neighbor, but this story goes above and beyond typical lawn care issues. Yeah, neighbors in the Salem Lakes part of Virginia Beach say one resident is offending them by blaring racist songs. Tenant Your Science Madison Pierman is looking into these claims and why police haven't been able to act, Madison. Stephanie, these residents tell us that this neighbor has at least eight home security cameras watching them in their court in Salem Lakes. They say he plays offensive music depending on who's outside. Recently, it's escalated to this. Whenever we would step out of our house, the monkey noises would start so racist and it's disgusting. Like, I don't even know how else to explain it. Janique Martinez recorded those sounds coming from her neighbor's house with her cell phone. She says it shows her Salem Lakes neighbor using speakers to play monkey noises when her family's outside. It's just him. He finds a way to antagonize people and does it so passively aggressively. She says it's not just her family getting the not so silent treatment. He has played music to taunt the entire cul-de-sac. But recently, Martinez says it's escalated. He found out that we called the police on him to turn down the music one morning, and it's just been nonstop with the N-word. My son is terrified of him, terrified. The minute I open my front door, his lights blink, or my music or my song comes on. As soon as they get to the middle of their driveway, it blinks. They got a specific song. Martinez and her neighbors were fed up with the lights and cameras. They decided to take action. I've gone to the magistrate. I've gone to civil court. I've um, talked to a lawyer. I've done everything in my in in my possession. Like I've done what I can to do it the right way. Ten on your side tried to speak with the neighbor for ourselves but no one answered. As for a solution, neighbors were told there's a fine line of when police can actually step in and having a racial slur played over a recording may not meet that line. According to the law, it's just a statement or a phrase or he's not doing enough or you know, bodily harm or threats to my family. I spent 11 years in the military. My husband is also a vet. We fought for this country, but yet there's no one to fight for us. 
Some neighbors tonight picking up their own fight. They've decided to protest outside the Jessamine Court home this evening to try to convince their neighbor to stop with the slurs. Wavy News will be there to follow up. In the newsroom, Madison Pierman, Ted on your side. Uh, I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Damn you, Obama. This morning, the CIAC is investigating claims students from East Catholic High School yelled racial slurs at opposing cheerleaders. Yeah, Eyewitness News spoke exclusively to one of the alleged victims last night. Channel 3 Eyewitness News reporter Roger Suzanne has been closely following this story for us. Roger, what did the cheerleader say? Well, good morning, guys. Yeah, it's truly disturbing, these allegations. A Montville cheerleader named Nadia tells us she was excited about her high school's first road game of the season, but she says after a tense contest, some East Catholic students stomped on their bags and then, worst of all, called some of the cheerleaders a racial slur. The disgusting allegations marred what should have been a night worth celebrating. East Catholic topped Montville in a thrilling overtime game on Friday night. But after the final whistle, a junior Montville cheerleader named Nadia tells Eyewitness News that some members of East Catholic's football team began stomping on the bags of Montville's cheer team. Nadia says the cheerleaders got their things quickly and tried to leave, but as they headed to the bus, she says some East Catholic students began yelling racial slurs. It's three or four kids that said, go home, N-word, go home, N-word, to me, and they were just screaming. Montville's superintendent has demanded an investigation, and the CIC is looking into the incident. East Catholic is also investigating, but the school's president does not believe racial slurs were used. In a statement, he writes in part, We continue to investigate issues raised at last Friday's football game against Montville High School. And while we do not believe anything inappropriate was said, we take this matter seriously. But Nadia's mom, Montessa, believes her daughter is telling the truth because she says Nadia called her right afterwards crying hysterically. Of course, my heart broke for her because she was so upset. It's the first time she's ever like had that type of experience and she was scared. Now, Nadia and her family did not want us to use their last names. The CIAC's director hopes to have an update on this investigation within the next 72 hours. By the way, you can read full statements from both East Catholic and Montville High School leaders on the Channel 3 app. Live in the studio, Roger Suzanne, Channel 3 Eyewitness News. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that we that is brought to our attention, we need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it um, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. 
And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health, but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism and white supremacy. The gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious, the answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. At a downtown Bend news conference tonight, Deschutes County DA John Hummel announced a grand jury indicted Ian Cranston on second-degree murder and other charges in the recent downtown Bend fatal shooting. 22-year-old Barry Washington Jr. was fatally shot in the early morning hours of September 19th. Cranston's being charged with murder in the second degree, first and second degree manslaughter, assault in the first degree, and two counts of unlawful use of a weapon. Hummel says he spoke with Barry Washington's mother minutes before announcing the charges. Two minutes before I walked down here, I was on the phone with Barry's mother, LaWanda Robinson. I informed LaWanda of the decision made by the grand jury. I express my condolences to her and her family as they continue to grieve the loss of Barry. Um, based on what I told her, she, she thanked God. That's what she said to me. Thank God. There's a reckoning with race that needs to happen in Central Oregon. And it needs to happen now. To the hundreds of people who have been advocating on behalf of Barry and his family, thank you. Keep it up. I see you and I respect you. Our community needs you. Know this, justice will be done in this case. Cranston's now being held without bail at the Deschutes County Jail until his court appearance tomorrow afternoon. To read more of Hummel's full statement and his answers to our questions tonight, go to our website, ktvz.com, for the web version of this story. The man gets buckets, flat out. He's once, twice, three times an all-star from the Washington Wizards, Bradley Beal. After uh, press conferences last year, you always encouraged people to mask up, and it seemed like you took COVID very seriously. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people would say that to take COVID seriously, but just get the vaccine. I know it's a personal decision and all, but are you surprised? person in this world is going to make their own decision for themselves. Um, I would like an explanation to, you know, people with vaccines, why are they still getting COVID? If that's something that we are supposed to highly be protected from, like, that's funny that, oh, it reduces your chances of going to the hospital. It doesn't eliminate anybody from getting COVID, right? 
So everybody, is everybody in here vaxxed? I would assume, right? So you all can still get COVID, right? Okay, but you can still get COVID, right? So, and you can still pass it along with the vax, right? I'm not asking, I'm just asking the question. New York's vaccine requirement has brought the NBA's behind the scenes battle over vaccination into public view. The league does not require players to be vaccinated. But local rules in New York City and San Francisco that require proof of vaccination for large indoor spaces means unvaccinated players for the city's teams, the New York Knicks and the Brooklyn Nets and the Golden State Warriors, cannot play on their home courts. And over the weekend, the NBA denied a request for a religious exemption for Warriors player Andrew Wiggins. The NBA says 90 percent of the league is vaccinated. The New York Knicks say their entire roster is vaccinated, but not the Brooklyn Nets with superstar Kyrie Irving highlighting the NBA's vaccine issues. Irving did not attend the Nets media day today because of New York City's vaccine protocols. And he wouldn't address if he expects to play at home, saying he wanted to keep his vaccination status private. A report in Rolling Stone looked into the hold the anti-vaccine contingent currently has over the NBA and notes that Irving has been liking and following conspiracy theorists online alleging secret societies implanting vaccines to connect black people to a master computer for, quote, a plan of Satan. For real. While his aunt suggested Irving could skip Nets home games this season. Matt Sullivan, who wrote that story, joins me. He's also the author of Can't Knock the Hustle. Also joining me is Jamel Hill, contributing writer for The Atlantic and host of the podcast Jamel Hill is Unbothered. This is a wild story, Matt. Uh, I read through it today and had to go back and reread some lines in it. It appears that Kyrie Irving is in general a conspiracy theorist. He got in some heat before for questioning whether the earth is round or flat. And in that, you know, previous issue, you know, he admitted to going down some YouTube rabbit holes over the, whether the earth is, is round or flat. So he is in general prone to sort of conspiracy theories. What scares me is it seems to be he's not alone contingent in the NBA? How big is this anti-vax contingent? I mean, as you said, Joy, the NBA does have 90% of players vaxxed and counting, but that's a lower rate than the conservative NFL. And my reporting shows that the NBA has an almost secret society of straight up anti-vaxxers. I report in my book that some players originally denied that the virus even existed. Now Kyrie's family is out here talking about, quote, Dr. Falsi. Another player was trying to explain to me for my story in Rolling Stone that masks don't work. And, and then there's a theory floating around about Moderna mind control that doesn't deserve amplification here. But last year, if the NBA was all in, in, all in on science and this pandemic-proof bubble, uh, the Hoopers are sick of testing. They don't want to trust the science. They don't want to get vaxxed. They don't want to get tested on their days off. In fact, Joy, they want to go to the club. So it's really a race against time here and fake news for the NBA to basically shame its vaccine deniers into avoiding that next kind of superstar, super spreader event. You know, what, what worries me about this, um, Jamel, is that, you know, we're talking about black players who have a lot of fans and a lot of influence and are parroting some of the anti-vax stuff that we hear just in our circles. And if they're saying it, if Kyrie Irving is saying it's just a conspiracy, it's very hard, you know, for you to get your cousin to, you know, to get vaccinated as well. Um, 
there were stories in this about Kyrie Irving going home to South Dakota, going to school events unmasked, and them having to, like, alter the photos because he was violating, like, the rules, going into schools, meeting with young people. This is terrifying. These are people who are open to not just getting COVID themselves, but maybe giving it to other people. Well, and that's the part that I wish more of the players who are unvaxxed would really understand. It's not just their influence, but their ability um, to, to really highlight um, and, and be positive role models. Like you mentioned, like it, it was very moving, the fact that Kyrie Irving has found this connection with his Native American roots. Well, it just so happens that the COVID rate um, among Native, American, Native, uh, Native Americans is, is awful. And he has a real opportunity there to talk to people um, in his community, not just the African-American community, but the Native American community about vaccinations. The other thing, too, that's so amazing and powerful about this misinformation is they will trust a YouTube rabbit hole. They will trust Facebook memes. They will trust other anecdotal bad evidence when the best evidence is right in front of them. 90% yeah. of the league is vaccinated. And Bradley Beal, who today talked about how he wasn't vaccinated, was so worried about the after effects. Look at the people on your damn team. There's a player in the NBA, Carl Anthony Towns, who has suffered an imaginable, unimaginable losses from COVID, losing close relatives, losing his mother. He himself had COVID, lost 50 pounds, thought about completely retiring from basketball. He was in such a dark place because of what this disease has done to his family. Talk to him. Stop talking to you two. And so to me, that is what I don't understand is that they have top medical experts. They have other players. They certainly believe other players about all sorts of other things. They can see the evidence for themselves, and yet they continue to be in this space of ignorance. Is there something different that the WNBA, the NFL, and even the NHL are doing, Matt, that they've got such high vaccination rates compared to what we tend to think of as the most sort of politically liberal of all of the leagues? Well, the NFL is pretty big, so if you talk about the numbers, we've probably got 50 or 60 NBA guys who are not vaxxed here that we're talking about. And NBA league sources tell me that if it comes to it, they'll sweep state databases to root out forged IDs, which have become a problem reportedly in the NFL. Um, and, you know, someone like Kyrie is not going to get paid for, for missing games. And he's got to balance that, right? That didn't stop him from taking a leave of absence in January, precipitated by the Capitol riot and the lack of charges against the, the cop who shot Jacob Blake. And when Kyrie came back, he and his teammate, Kevin Durant, they, they skipped the national anthem. Now, nobody really noticed that until I did, but I, but I think these players are on notice now. Are they going to stand for justice and for science? Or, as Jamel said, are they going to kind of pick and choose their battles of influence? You know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was pretty harsh. He came down, he said, these, they've given up their you know, their role as role models at this point. But I have to say, you know, as out front as some NBA players, and especially WNBA, but some NBA players have been about things like voting rights, it's been pretty silent. There aren't too many prominent NBA players that are getting out there and saying, let's get back and doing that same kind of activism. It's troubling. And, you know, we know that there's a disproportionate rate of death among black people and indigenous people, et cetera, if they get COVID. I, it, I don't know. I don't really have a question there. I, I just am going to leave get you. Let you have the last word, Jamel, because it worries me. Um, what I would, I understand why it would be very concerning, but I think there are rules of sort of unofficial decorum in the NBA. You don't talk about a guy's money. And I think that there is this fine line that a lot of players are trying to balance 
they all keep saying this is a personal decision. Actually, it's not a personal decision because if Kyrie Irving misses these home games and considering how close the Brooklyn Nets were to going to the NBA finals last year and possibly winning a title, if this cost them their title chances, this is costing people's legacies. This is costing yeah. other people jobs because everybody doesn't have the job security that he has on his own team. And I would say that for Andrew Wiggins as, as well. The Golden State Warriors have the fifth best odds to win the NBA title, meaning that they are in play. All right. So if he winds up missing these games because he's not vaccinated and it costs them, then you're costing people a lot more. So it can't be a personal decision when it infects and in, when it affects an entire community and your team right. and your organization. And your hometown fans. You can't even play mm -hmm. in front of your hometown fans because of, of this and the conspiracy theories. It's too much. Matt Sullivan, thank you very much. Great article. Jamel Hill, you're always great. Thank you. Begin this hour with a big story out of Michigan, which has not been getting the national attention it deserves. It may be the largest case of sex abuse by a single person in U.S. history. More than 950 people, some women, but mostly men, have accused now-deceased University of Michigan doctor Robert E. Anderson of sexual abuse while he worked for the university between 1966 and 2003. Wow! Hold up, hold up, hold up. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. My mind's telling me no. I want you to pondy replay drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> Just give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. It may be the largest case of sex abuse by a single person in U.S. history. More than 950 people, some women, but mostly men, have accused now-deceased University of Michigan doctor Robert E. Anderson of sexual abuse while he worked for the university between 1966 and 2003. Tad DeLuca is one of them. He was a Michigan wrestler in 1972 when he first saw Anderson with complaints of cold sores. DeLuca says he was in his first year at the school, initially naive, then confused, and ultimately devastated. And I'll tell you at the outset of this story, what he alleges here is both disturbing, and at the same time, he describes it in clinical, explainable terms for any sensitive ears present. I went to see him, and he kind of did a half look at my face. And then he put on a pair of rubber gloves, and he gave me a hernia check, which was no big deal. Then he started... Um, for lack of a better word, rolling or trying to massage my my scrotum and my penis. And I just, you know, just kind of sat there. And the next thing he said was, you know, let's turn around and, you know, and drop your drawers. And he did a prostate check on me. I was 17 years old. And I'm pretty sure there were at least four times before my 18th birthday that I saw him. And he did that check on me. DeLuca says Anderson repeated the process for a knee injury, a shoulder injury, a dislocated elbow, and an illness that would later be diagnosed by a different doctor as hepatitis. I said, I feel terrible. I have a rash under my arm. My skin is discolored. He kind of half looked at it and did a prostate check on me. Let me home, you're fine. It took until his junior year and a conversation with a football player on his hall for Tad DeLuca to clearly see something was very, very wrong. And this guy went into a tirade about pervert, Dr. Anderson, 
my my friend Jimmy went in there and he got the glove. He hit a bad shoulder, but he got the glove. It felt almost like someone slapped me in the chest or my blood pressure was popping. It's like, oh, my God, pervert. DeLuca told us it threw him into confusion. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me that someone wants to put their finger up and touch whatever word you want to use? That was devastating. And I, I couldn't tell the coach because the coach was like the most important thing in my life at the time. How did I, how could I tell him that I let someone put his finger into my rectum? It was like, I, I can't do that. I, I started wetting the bed. I was 20 years old. So I hadn't wet the bed in what, 18 years, maybe 19 years. I had to be careful. Like, oh, no, my, Friend knocks on the door and tell him to get ready for class. I got to kind of, you know, I might have wet in the bed. DeLuca says he stopped seeking medical assistance and deliberately wrestled in a way to protect his chronically injured elbow. And he remembers that insisting on not seeking treatment made him a less competitive wrestler. And it affected his feelings about the sport, and it created a rift between him and his teammates. So he wrote a letter to his coach complaining about Dr. Anderson's many, quote, genital, hernia, and prostate examinations. And he fired back a letter that was pretty nasty and, and took took away my scholarship. Tad DeLuca describes that as a kind of pivot point for him. He fought and regained his scholarship with the help of a lawyer, and he left the wrestling team. Robert Anderson, though, kept working at the University of Michigan until 2003. He died in 2008 without facing any charges. Remember, Anderson started his career at Michigan in 1966. Tad DeLuca first sought treatment from him in 1972. Nearly a thousand people now accuse Anderson of inappropriate conduct. Lenny Bernstein is a reporter for The Washington Post. This uh, story, what interested me is that it is not confined to athletes. Um, And Lulu, full disclosure, I was at the University of Michigan in the late 1970s. So I had familiarity with um, the locations of things and and how the university works. Um, Dr. Anderson saw all kinds of people. He saw students from all walks of life at the university health services. He had a small private practice. He was training medical students from uh, the University of Michigan Medical School. He was doing these kinds of things to all kinds of people. And the story really had not gotten out beyond the uh, the Michigan area. And I thought one of the things I could do was to bring wider appreciation to how big uh, a situation this really was. Other survivors said they complained to coaches, trainers, administrators, and nothing happened, uh, the same as what happened to Tad. I mean, how did these allegations finally get meaningful attention after all these years, and 950 people who were allegedly abused? Well, in 2018, Tad wrote a letter to the university, and after uh, some bit of delay for a number of months, it was assigned to a university detective to begin an investigation. The investigation was done uh, secretly. Eventually ended up with the prosecutors, and they decided that because of the passage of time and um, perhaps some other factors, there was nobody to charge. Then in 2019, uh, another person 
motivated by the Larry Nassar scandal up the road at Michigan State, wrote uh, to the university again and uh, was sort of stonewalled. And he went to the Detroit paper. His name was Robert Julian Stone. And the papers asked the university about what had happened. And at that point, the university revealed uh, all that had been happening over the past couple of years and put out a call for uh, victims to uh, call in uh, and uh, write in and say what had happened to them. Um, and, and then eventually this just mushroomed from there. Tad, why did you write that letter in 2018? The big part was Larry Nasser, the, the women gymnast at Michigan State. There was one story that was just like mine. She spoke up and they either threatened to take her scholarship away or they did. They took money from her. And it's just like, hey, this happened to me. I know what I know what they're talking about. I knew that if I stood up and said something, I could be smacked down again really hard and embarrassed. But I, it was just something I had to do. I, I had to have redemption for this. Because I, you know, after all these years, I knew I didn't do anything wrong. Hmm. But I, when I came out of losing the scholarship and when the coach got through with me, I was the problem. I was a loser. Lenny, the university is obviously in mediated talks with attorneys uh, about how to compensate the victims. So we can't really talk too much about that. But they have instituted a number of other reforms aimed at preventing future abuse. Um, in your view, how has the university now responded? It's too early to tell what the reforms will bring. The university has apologized on behalf of Dr. Anderson and the pain he caused. So they are acknowledging that this occurred. The university has not acknowledged, at least not publicly, the role of all the people who knew or should have known that this was going on and didn't do anything. And why? Why, if coaches and trainers and administrators had heard these stories, why did nothing happen for decades? You can say to yourselves, well, it was a different time. We didn't have the same appreciation of sex abuse. The victims were almost all male, and we didn't equate it the same way we did as the sex abuse of women. But Dr. Anderson worked there until 2003, and that is where the university, at least according to the survivors I've spoken with, uh, needs to own up further to what happened. Tad, what would you like to see next? You know what? I want them to say, hey, we screwed up. We screwed up for a long time. And it, it, when they say that it, their apologies and their whatever they, the words they use, it, they mean nothing. You know, it, you know it, I mean, I, let me put this in wrestling terms. When I won in wrestling, it was my fault. When I lost, it was my fault. I would have no trouble telling you, yep, I messed up. If U of M would just say, hey, guys, we screwed up for so long and messed up so many lives. I think that would go a long way. That is Tad DeLuca, who is speaking about the abuse he experienced, and Lenny Bernstein, who wrote about the University of Michigan sex abuse scandal for The Washington Post. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. 
we reached out to the University of Michigan. They provided a link to their past statements and pointed in particular to comments made by the head of the university's Board of Regents in September. At the time, he said in part, to all who are speaking out, we hear you and we value you. Sexual predator and trafficker R. Kelly, the famous R&B singer, was found guilty Monday of a series of charges, including racketeering based on sexual exploitation of children, kidnapping forced labor, and transporting people across state lines for sex. Kelly's sentencing is scheduled for May next year. He faces decades in prison. Eleven accusers, nine women and two men, and 34 other witnesses detailed Kelly's pattern of sexual and other abuse against dozens of women and underage girls for nearly two decades. Monday's guilty verdict comes after years of allegations R. Kelly had abused minors, including as far back as 1994, when he married then 15-year-old R&B singer, the late Aaliyah. She died in a plane crash. He was arrested in 2002 and accused of making a recording of himself sexually abusing and urinating on a 14-year-old girl. It was the remarkable docu-series Surviving R. Kelly that helped give a platform to his accusers, black women and girls. The first witness to testify in R. Kelly's latest trial was Jahanda Pace, who described how she was sexually and physically abused by Kelly when she was 16 years old. In this clip from Surviving R. Kelly, she says she was 15 when she met Kelly in 2008 outside his child pornography trial. I went to his trial because I was a super fan at the time. I didn't believe he was guilty, and I didn't want to believe that he was guilty. I was a freshman in high school. He was old for me to like him, but I fell in love with his music. After Robert's trial, his friend sent me a message and invited me to R. Kelly's party. And in the middle of me texting him back, Rob, he actually called my phone. And he was telling me, he's I remember you. And I said, well, what do you remember me from? He said, you came to my trial. Thank you for your support. I was shocked. I felt like I was on top of the world. That was survivor Jahanda Pace, who says she was later sexually, mentally, and physically abused while living in a cult-like atmosphere in R. Kelly's home when she was 16. Pace testified, quote, he wanted me to put my hair up in pigtails and dress like a Girl Scout, and said, quote, he recorded us having sexual intercourse. Pace also testified that Kelly gave her herpes and never told her he had a sexually transmitted disease. She responded to the verdict Monday, writing in part, I'm thankful to stand with those who were brave enough to speak up. I'm happy to finally close this chapter of my life. I testified and the jury found him guilty. No matter what you think of me or how you feel about things, today I made history. I want to see you 
be brave, she said. Meanwhile, cases against R. Kelly have also been filed in Illinois and Minnesota. For more, we go to Chicago to speak with Dream Hampton, executive producer of the six-part Lifetime documentary series Surviving R. Kelly, which won a Peabody Award and was nominated for an Emmy. Dream, welcome back to Democracy Now! You blew this case wide open. You're the reason this trial was held. Others uh, found him not guilty. Can you respond to the guilty verdict on charge after charge? I agree with Geronda Pace. I mean, and, and let's look back at Geronda's story, like you just said in your recap. She was a high school student going to the courtroom in 2008 to support him during a trial where he's accused of child pornography, amongst other things. R. Kelly cruises a 10th grader. I mean, that is the that's the hubris that this man had during his first trial, a trial that he was able to manipulate, first by putting it off for years, secondly, and most importantly, by keeping the victim close to him. She was a teenager who thought she was in love with him, but by delaying that first trial for so many years, he made sure that should she decide to testify against him, she would appear as a 20-year-old. So there were times when I was making Surviving R. Kelly, that I had to deal with R. Kelly's own biography, which of course included incredibly painful tra sexual trauma. He himself, of course, is the victim of sexual abuse. But I had to also look at how deeply manipulative he was. After 2008, after that trial, he took to forcing, coercing women to write false um, confessions. And all of these things added up and escalated, quite frankly. Um, just, he just became more egregious, uh, more bold, you know, with the kinds of crimes that he was committing against black girls and women. And it was time for it to end. And I'm so proud that, you know, black girls like Geronda Pace, now black women, found the courage to sit for us um, under these, underneath these hot lights for hours at a time and to share her story, to reopen and relive that trauma, which is so hard. Um, and I hope that this does begin a healing journey for them all. And not just the ones who sat for our camera. I talked to dozens of women to corroborate the women whose stories were on camera, who didn't want to come on camera. And uh, Dream, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the resistance uh, that you're, you uh, encountered in terms of developing the series that you made. Uh, and, and also, if you could talk about the reaction in the in the African American community over the years, if there's been a difference uh, in how uh, folks in the African American community view the, the allegations and charges against R. Kelly versus the the general population. Yeah, I'll take the second question first. I mean, black women are in the black community, and black women have led um, this fight for justice for decades. Um, I think about someone like Jim Derogatis, who has heroically stayed on this beat, and he depended on black women coming forward, on trusting him, on um, opening up and sharing this incredibly painful abuse with him. Um, I think about the founders of Mute R. Kelly, who worked to platform him, um, to sanction him, to boycott, to divest. I think about 
you know, and so that's what I have to hold in my heart. Um, I have been black my whole life. I'm from Detroit. I know what rape culture is in my community and I know what it is in the larger country and quite frankly, in a global context. And it's exactly what the support of R. Kelly looks like. It, it is about um, disbelieving testimony after testimony over decades, quite frankly, of black girls and women. Um, if it means, you know, protecting um, a black man from, quite frankly, an unjust criminal system. It's complicated um, when it comes to our community. It's incredibly complicated. Um, so, yeah. And now I can't remember the first question. I'm sorry. Oh, and the other issue was the resistance that you encountered in the making of um, your series. Well, you know, I we were working for Lifetime, um, and they have a, a particular audience. And I think that these women's testimony um, in some ways might have been enough for the network, but they were trying to do something different. They told me with this documentary and I'd hope to bring in some of the systemic stuff. I didn't get resistance from the network necessarily, but I could not get the president of Jive Records, Barry Weiss, for instance, to come on camera. I couldn't get people who'd worked at Jive Records, at R. Kelly's record label, who worked with him after, you know, this tape um, that Amy described in her opening of R. Kelly um, sexually abusing, raping a 14-year-old, Sparkle's niece, um, his R&B protege singer who, um, you know, sacrificed a career um, to step forward and testify against R. Kelly in 08 and speak up for her niece. Um, so I wanted, while the women's testimonies were important, it was also important for me to have some corporate context. You know, we did get the cultural context in there, but I, it was important for me that we talk about the industry. And we never got around to that, um, not just the industry. We did talk about some of the kind of systemic support that he had on the ground in Chicago, um, which included employing um, off-duty police officers, many of whom were so active in the force. Um, BuzzFeed, Jamila's King, Jamila King's Buzz, uh, Jamila King at BuzzFeed just wrote an incredible article um, last week about, you know, the cop who uh, testified, Hood is his last name, um, trying to defend R. Kelly, quite frankly, on the stand, but his, his testimony ended up helping the prosecutors. And so, and, you know, and I had evidence of this as we were making the documentary where a parent would call the CPD to get a wellness check. And um, we had testimony from people who'd been in the studio that the police called R. Kelly to give him a heads up that the police were coming on the behest of the parents to do a wellness check. And he was able to shuttle the girls um, out of the studio. So those, or uh, the police would show up for a wellness check, ask, you know, someone at the front door if the girls were okay and leave. So, I mean, the, the and this is true for all victims of, um, you know, sexual and gender crimes. Um, it's not going to the police and going to this system for justice is not some clear path. The police are often the abusers are in our, in our community. Um, Andrea Ritchie has done so much great work on this, as has Mary Pava. But it was complicated. Dream Hampton, if you could talk about what happened to Aaliyah. He produced her first film, uh, R. Kelly did, um, Age Ain't Nothing But a Number. He would end up marrying her. She would die in a plane crash years later. But talk about the significance of her experience. What 
when did he start with Aaliyah? We have evidence that, um, like with Sparkle's niece, that, you know, he began grooming Aaliyah possibly at 12, um, which is really hard to say, you know? You talk about age ain't nothing but a number. I mean, he's no Nabokov, but he, he authored that song, you know? R. Kelly is a songwriter. And so a lot of what R. Kelly has been doing for decades has been in the public. Um, he called himself the Pied Piper. Um, it, he famously, in a BET interview with Teray, when asked if he liked teenage girls, replied with, what do you mean by teenage? Um, he mocked us by telling us that in this video in 2002, this rape tape that had gone viral in the streets pre-internet, that it was his brother on camera and not him. So in so many ways, and we opened Surviving R. Kelly with a Facebook post um, of R. Kelly saying, it's been 30 years. If y'all wanted to get me, y'all should have got me then. And, you know, I, I took that challenge, as did the entire team, um, Brie Miranda Bryant, Tamara Simmons, um, creative at Buna Murray. You know, we realized that, you know, the hubris was staggering. And I didn't think that this would add, lead to charges, I have to be honest. When charges began being announced in February, just a month after our documentary aired, I was gobsmacked. I did not think that it would lead to this. What I'd hoped that it would lead to was a reckoning that the public, that my community um, might reconsider, you know, their support of him and might look more deeply at rape culture overall in our communities. I said uh, the song, I, the film of Aaliyah, yeah. I meant the song. Um, of course. But also, if you could talk about, for the first time, um, young men coming forward who were abused as boys. Yeah, I mean, um, I can't say that I was surprised, given the reporting and the research that we did um, for Surviving R. Kelly. I. I would hope that the gender of his victims, R. Kelly was a young male victim himself of sexual abuse and rape. I would hope that the gender of the victims wouldn't have an effect on whether or not um, R. Kelly supporters and fans continue to support him. I would want to believe that Black girls matter, that Black women matter. Uh, but I know that you know, sometimes homophobia trumps uh, our care for black children, you know? Um, and this isn't just a black issue. I just happen to be a black woman who, you know, lives in black community and works in black community, writing about a genre artist who performs R&B mostly for black people. So that is who I'm caring about when I do this work context of white supremacy gusty renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date saturday october 2 2021 so i have been told our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, suggestions, counter-racist observations or suggestions. The number 
the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, I want to read just the last little paragraph of what we heard from Democracy Now!, their interview this week with Dream Hampton, victim of white supremacy. Anybody, if you, you know, want to take the code, she said what she said, no problem, a plus. I'm just trying to because I had a difficult time understanding and I know the procedure it is always best ask the person directly to explain but Dream Hampton is not here so I'm hoping if other folks if they have a thought on uh, yeah what I'll just read it to you because I was a little confused I didn't quite grasp so I have the transcript so I can read it no confusion Dream Hampton she was Asked by Amy Goodman, my BFF, all these years still. If you could talk about, for the first time, young men coming forward who were abused as boys. <clears throat> Presumably these would be black boys, but no racial classification given. BFF. Dream Hampton responds, yeah, I mean, I can't say that I was surprised given the reporting and the research that we did for surviving R. Kelly. I would hope that the gender of his victims, R. Kelly, was a young male victim himself of sexual abuse and rape, I would hope that the gender of the victims wouldn't have an effect on whether or not R. Kelly's supporters and fans continue to support him. I would want to believe that black girls matter, that black women matter, but I know that sometimes homophobia trumps our care for black children, you know? And this isn't just a black issue. I just happen to be a black woman who lives in the black community and works in the black community writing about a genre artist who performs R&B mostly for black people. So that is who I'm caring about when I do this work. That's what she said, according to the transcript. I think it's accurate. That sounds about what I just heard. Uh, I didn't really grasp. I didn't really understand what was said or, yeah, folks have a thought. Now that you've heard it two times, feel free. Star six one. Few thoughts to share before we get to the callers. Lengthy list. There were lots of things that took place this week, as is normally the case. Uh, the post office slowdown. They've been saying that pretty much since last year with COVID nineteen, and then all their financial issues and what have you. That's back when uh, Trump was in the White House. Uh, that they've been saying all of this. So uh, for them to be saying that there will be more shutdowns and uh, it will be going slower and that they think this will have some sort of impact, particularly on non-white people. Uh, And they talked about all the different things being late or taking longer to arrive uh, and the impact on workers. I think we've talked about for a while uh, for a number of years. Callie Crosley, she talked about uh, knowing black people who worked at the post office. I think for a number of years that was one federal job that a number of non-white people could get. I think we even have some cows listeners uh, who have worked at the post office. Uh, let's see. 
I tried to pick out as many of the metaphors as I could during the segment this week, and there were many. Um, the segment on Instagram being harmful, uh, Instagram owned by Facebook and Facebook Mark, Mark Zuckerberg at all, them knowing about the harm uh, of these images and what have you. Just another illustration, white people are not ignorant. They're not ignorant about racism, white supremacy, and they generally, it's not saying that they, you know, never make any errors or omnipresent. It's just saying generally you can't have a system of domination that lasts for centuries with a lot of people who are ignorant and who are not mindful about details and probably doing some thorough study to keep this operation going. So no surprise at all that, oh yes, we knew about the harm of this. Let it ride. I think we've encouraged, recommended not having the social media unless you're using this for business purposes. Let's see. Uh, they had we had two different segments on obesity, uh, which I thought both were equally uh, important in terms of this not being discussed. Now, they discussed it in the segment on North Carolina from the perspective of why isn't this why isn't this group being targeted to make sure that they get vaccines and all the rest? I was thinking, hey, I've been hearing about a relationship between obesity and COVID-19 since the very beginning of this so-called pandemic, like March of 2020. Why isn't it? Hey, you if you ever needed motivation to get your weight under control, this is it. Like they could have started that right at the beginning. Like, let's do some gardening. We'll give everybody some coupons to go to the farmer's market, get fresh fruits and vegetables. That's what they were talking about. Avoid those sugars and all that nonsense, potato chips and all the rest of it. Put that hostess cake down and candy bars and all that. They could have been doing that. And then last week, it was not let's plant based diet, get some exercise, put away those non water beverages. It wasn't that it was let's get a pill. A lot more attention could have been focused on that throughout all of this. They can still come back and do vaccines or whatever else they want to talk about. But hey, obesity, eating well and then. What you eat helps your immune system function well. Conversely, if you're eating a lot of nonsense and sugar, inflammatory foods, chicken is on that list of inflammatory foods. Not even talked about yet. Anyway, inflammatory foods uh, can do things that do not allow your immune system to function optimally. That's something that could have been focused on, shared much more prominently uh, over the past year and a half or so. Eat well, use the logic, plant-based diet, drink more water, try to get away from those non-water beverages. Uh, let's see, lots of unnecessary sugar there. Uh, and they said in the in the second report where they talked about the amount of weight gain, they said. They had a substantial number of people who reported an average weight gain of 29 pounds. I myself talked about my tubby years and, you know, no shaming. Did my share and plenty others of potato chips and all kinds of, you know, foolishness, poison. Uh, That's 29 pounds is a lot of weight to put on. I mean, 
What? That's like a new wardrobe. Like 29 pounds? Whew. Wow. And I, I'm not, you know, I get it. I mean, if you're at home, the gyms were closed in a lot of places. And if you got to be stuck in the house and they said like exactly what they said, you're ordering out food. Talked about that. That's one thing you could do. I try to do as best I can. Like Posting images. I think since last year, you could use this time to cook. I've posted tons of images on my social media page, facebook.com forward slash the problem is white people, smoothies, cornbread, all kinds of things. Easy. Some, you know, take a little bit more time. Some do not get a blender. Talked about that. You don't have to get the priciest blender out there. A quality blender can do just amazing things in the kitchen where you can eat really tasty things. Great way to get your veggies in. You won't even know it. You can sneak them in and get away from, you know, Uber this and DoorDash this where it's going to be a lot of, you know, nonsense, unhealthy foods frequently. But 29 pounds. I was stunned. That was almost a rewind moment right there. Maybe it should have been. Uh, Let's see. They have the report with Fred Harris, who was on the Kerner Commission. Mr. Fuller mentions all the time. ProduceJustice.com. Uh, They mentioned in that segment they played some of the news clips and they said shooting at firemen. Maybe it's firefighters now. Um, That is a common, what I would say, racist trope in talking about that time period, the 1960s, that, oh, my goodness, the Negroes are shooting at fire officers. And that would be rationale for allowing the fire to burn and burn down the whole neighborhood and that sort of thing. And then they would find out, oh, they were not shooting at fire, uh, the firefighters. That's when we've heard it repeatedly. Uh, it's come up in the book club and other readings. Uh, but this would be common when common justification for further mistreatment of black people. That racist trope rumor. Uh, let's see. They had Fred Harris on. Now, <laughs> metaphor. I have to come back to that. There were so many metaphors. Uh, Fred Harris, last living white member of the Kerner Commission, he said at 1969. million to get this here thing working correctly. Take care of our Negro problem. They said, oh my God, I have $80 million. On the Vietnam conflict, which was concurrent, exact same time, they're shuffling off with Marvin Gaye send that boy off to die. 50 year anniversary. So they're shipping Negro boys off to die. Left and right. Left and right. Left and right. They spent, according to reports, $111 billion, with a B, dollars on the conflict in Vietnam. $80 million for our Negro problem? $111 billion to bomb some non-white people on the other side of the planet. Agent Orange, yes, 50 years later, they still got all kinds of poison and toxins. Green Planet, they say. 111 billion, 80 million. They could have had a bake sale. They could have just tacked that on and just pretend that we're going to throw this 80 million in to bomb the, the yellow people and we'll just funnel this back to the niggers. They could have done that. No. Mm. Let's see. They had Adewale Aduye, 
uh, black male, uh, former uh, attorney, L.A. prosecuting, Los Angeles prosecuting office. He mentioned O.J. Simpson book club from this year. Johnny Cochran, the legend, Johnny Cochran Jr. Uh, he took the pseudonym Spooky Brown Esquire. Also from the book club, the spook who sat by the door, the late Sam Greenlee, who said he meant that as total fiction. At least later on, that's what he said. 2014 book club. Uh, let's see. The report on Bruce's Beach, also in California, where they have returned this property. Thought fascinating. Have to investigate and see, you know, how long the transition takes and what the condition of the property is. But that's, you know, grand uh, down in California. I see Governor Newsom waited until after the recall to get this done. Uh, but they said uh, that the Bruce family was pleased about this and looked to, to Jesus Christ. Thought, wow, religion of white supremacy being invoked even in this. I don't know if it's supposed to be reconciliation or whatever it is, but grand for them getting their property back. Uh, we did that whole pro uh, program with Andrew Carl uh, on the land was ours specifically about the theft of beachfront property owned by black people like Bruce's Beach. Uh, let's see. The man. The Okay. Before we get to the, the segment, they had the veteran family come on on Colin Kaepernick. You got not one, but two veterans in the family. We just had that segment yesterday talking about how veterans, they would step off the base, so-called, and then all the terrorism begins. You got two veterans and monkey noises when they exit the house. In the name of Colin Kaepernick, like the entire time, it should be no anonymity, like get out of here, like you are not welcome, like we're going to get bullhorns and play loud noises at your house. You get out of here, taunting a U.S. veteran. Are you sick? Are you crazy? Have you tarred and feathered like that uh, Colin Kaepernick fellow disrespecting that? Event? That's the way that they should be talking Two, not one, two veterans. Let's see. And the children being terrorized, that'll drive you to gain weight too. having a lot of undue stress, like being a victim of white supremacy. What a disgrace having the children of veterans being terrorized. Let's see. OK, so they had the segment. Many things happened. We had people who wanted the return of albino affairs. Uh, I was looking they sent reports and everything like motivated get albino affairs back uh we will include it but i keep saying like there have been so many different things happening that it's been difficult to justify taking time away to include commentary on a pale rodent that type of a thing but i could be in error albino affairs is important duly noted the section on the nba players not being vaccinated i certainly do not think pro sports is the most important thing at all but wow, the anti-black, that's why we're listening to that report, really, to analyze the anti-blackness in that segment. Most of the people, there were only three participants, Matt Sullivan, white man. He's the guest. That segment was hosted by Joy Reid, black female. And then they had uh, Jamela Hill, Hill, excuse me, uh, on 
as a guest as well, black female. So you have two victims of racism and this one white man. This white man had written this article for the Rolling Stone talking about these different black NBA players and their resistance uh, to wanting to get the vaccine. <laughs> There's so many layers uh, of racism, white supremacy, even just in the verbiage that was used. And I preceded their segment with Bradley Beal so you can hear what was he doing? Sounding like an attempted counter-racist scientist asking questions. You can be vaccinated and still transmit and or still be contagious, contract the virus. Yes. Is that accurate? Oh, OK. <laughs> just trying to understand, just following logic, asking questions. They don't present them as, oh, OK. Amongst the NBA population where 90 percent of the players are vaccinated, overwhelmingly a league overwhelmingly populated by individuals classified as black males. Ninety percent of these folks are vaccinated. So, I mean, hey, they are crushing it, as they say. We got to focus on this small number of black males who are hesitant. And it can't just be, oh, wow, they're not doing this. What's it going to be? Are they going to miss these games? Oh, no, it is critical. It is judgmental and it's unitary. Knocked my line out accidentally. It's critical. It's judgmental and it's unanimous. Uh, they're talked about and I even at the pause neck. I would have to ponder, like, when do black people get a chance to come on television and criticize a white person in this manner other than our former president, Donald Trump? You all can let me know. But some of just the language that was used, they were referred to by Matt Sullivan, white man, as a secret society. You mean like the Ku Klux Klan secret society? Most of these folks with the except, I think all of these folks in some way, whether they were in person or via Zoom, just participated in media day. So, I mean, what do you mean secret society? Metaphor. I talk about that all the time. Uh, and then uh, they said in this dark place, talk about that on a regular basis, everything black. Oh foreboding, evil, ignorant, because they'll say in the dark, meaning that you're ignorant, uninformed. They're in this dark place because they don't want to get the vaccine. And then it switches from it's not just we're criticizing them because these small number of players are not vaccinated or vaccine hesitant. We're also criticizing players who are vaccinated, but they're not promoting the vaccine. They're not going out and, hey, everybody, let's get vaccinated. And I'm willing to do a PSA like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> it's like lots of things. Why not? Hey, let's get out and be against obesity. Like when they were talking about Kyrie Irving saying, man, he's going and connecting with these Native Americans. And that's awesome. And would be for him. And why not take this opportunity to encourage them to be vaccinated? Their numbers of COVID-19 are terrible, which is reportedly true. I think their numbers with regards to obesity and alcoholism are equally troubling and have been a major issue for much, much, much longer 
than COVID-19. It would be awesome if Kyrie Irving could take some time and talk to them about diet, eating plant-based meals, not drinking alcohol. What is that, morons? Sobriety would be best. That would be awesome, too, but I didn't hear any criticism of that. Just the vaccine, that's it. Why not even talk about racism, white supremacy, and anti-blackness? Lots of things. It would be great if he could have talked to them about. Maybe he did. I don't know. But the vaccine, that we got to fuss at people. And again, now, man, Luka Doncic, they do have white players, white stars even, in the NBA and other leagues. Are they fussing at them? Why don't you get out there and do PSA? Tell these folks to get vaccinated, man. You know they watch basketball. The language, even there was a different report. They said uh, they were describing these players as being cagey. Oh, and they said there was uh, the question the reporter asked Bradley Beal. He said that there was an NBA herd that was against the vaccine. Now, again, 90 percent of NBA players are vaccinated. So it's a small herd. But two, I thought herds, you have like herds of. I don't know, cows, cattle, sheep, animals, I thought. I generally don't hear there being herds of people unless people are using that term in a derogatory manner, which fits exactly what I said. Like, and it's, There are white professional uh, sports players who are not vaccinated. I have not seen them talked about in this sort of way and with this much attention focused on them. If you all can, you know, get some folks, give us some data, correct me, I would appreciate it. But it has seemed, like I said, anti-blackness. And one of the common features, my conclusion with anti-blackness, it might look a little suspicious to just have a lot of white people on a segment come out. And man, that no count, ignorant Tyree Irving, Bradley Beal and all the rest of these niggers. That might Andrew Wiggins, that might look a little, you know, it's 2022, basically. So we have mostly black people on to come out and criticize and talk bad about these black males. Fascinating. Fascinating. Even the, the argument, it was said they had concerns about possible side effects from the vaccine. And they said, hey, 90% of the players are vaccinated. Look at your damn team, which I thought was like, wow, this is on a mainstream newscast. Like, how often do you see a black person on television get to curse at a white person? whether they're present or not, because they disagree with their view. Hmm. But the other part of it, I thought was, I mean, how long does it take for side effects to show up? Is this something that might take six months, a year, five years? I don't think Jamil King, excuse me, Hill, I don't think Jamil Hill uh, is a medical professional. I think she's a journalist. Reportedly, excellent journalist. No problem there. VGQ. But I mean, that's what I mean. Just very disparaging in a very uh, intense manner. I would say unanimous. Like there's nobody to even take the perspective. Like, well, some of them seem like they're being reasonable. And they're hey, there are lots of folks, even governors and what have you, who have expressed hesitancy. So I could see where some of them might be eh, like a little bit more information. Why couldn't not one person can even take that perspective? All right. Let's see. Last thing I'll get in before we get to the folks who called. Speaking of anti-blackness, 
the whole trial with R. Kelly. I did not watch the trial. I'm not an expert uh, on the R. Kelly saga. Uh, over the years, we have talked about this before, uh, and I've said before that I had suspicion might be true. What has been alleged that could be the case. All of that being said, he has been convicted. There can be two things that are true at the same time. The system of white supremacy racism produces monsters and monstrosities. That's what's modeled. And particularly, if we're talking about any sort of sexual perversion and the like. Oh, that is modeled all over the known universe by the usual suspects. But that doesn't negate the fact I wouldn't feel any better if I was one of R. Kelly's victims or if my one of my children or family members was one of his victims. That would not make me feel any better. The system of white supremacy creates monsters and monstrosities. At the same time, racists can take an incident like this and use it for racist purposes. And that's what I've seen, like the number of reports with R. Kelly is the worst predator in history, the greatest predator in the history of pop music. How do you even quantify qualify such a title like though immediately the worst like I said I'm not defending he's convicted I'm not caping for him just the worst really do you have categories for all of this incidentally I didn't hear any forgiveness talk like with Dylan Roof and a number of the other incidences where black people are killed or raped or savaged and they have to come out when it's a white perpetrator do you think you'll be for I didn't hear any of that with R. Kelly. Not one time. Not that I'm surprised and certainly not that I'm promoting forgiveness for anyone. Just making an observation. The other component, the reason that I sequenced those clips as I did. They can take something that can be true. R. Kelly could be totally guilty of everything that they said. I don't have any evidence to the contrary. He's been convicted. That being said, they can take something that's true and totally bury another report like Dr. Robert Anderson. Now, this is the same week where I've heard repeatedly, R. Kelly is the worst predator ever. He's the worst predator that ever did it. I'm not saying there needs to be a champion. I'm just saying, wow, like to hear that over and over this week. And then you all haven't said a word. My black brother, Dr. Cornell West, you say, haven't said a mumbling word. My BFF, Amy Goodman, Democracy Now!, they've been on the air much longer than the cows. They have never said a mumbling word about Dr. Robert Anderson who abused, they said, 950 people over decades with university sanction, and he was never even charged. And you're going to tell me R. Kelly is the worst ever, and then you can't even just connect like, hey, all of this at the same time, and this fella, Robert Anderson, is right down the road from Larry Nassar, where he just abused Simone Biles. The entire U.S. Olympic team got away. Same thing. Got protected by powerful white people. That word protection was used. That'll be the last thing I say. The word protection was used with regards to black people protecting R. Kelly. I'm just using counter racist logic. 
if a system of white supremacy racism exists, it is impossible completely for any black person, any non-white person to protect another non-white person or persons including themselves. If that sort of protection was possible, we wouldn't have a system of white supremacy. Just trying to follow logic. Dr. Anderson had protection. Worked there for nearly 40 years. Never faced a trial, an arrest. You all can talk about this years after I've been dead. Nearly 20 years after I've been dead. You all can hash this out and think on it. That's protection. If white people wanted to prosecute R. Kelly, I'm very sure black people in Chicago could not have protected R. Kelly. Stop that from happening. Fans of his, though they may be, I've seen zero, and I mean zero evidence that black people are able to successfully protect another black person. You can even back that up. I've seen zero evidence that non-white people, period, are able to protect another non-white person from the most powerful white people if they really decide that they want you. Zero evidence. But I could be wrong. VGQ, but I also make an effort to follow logic. Very important. Anywho, we will get to the callers, hear their thoughts on what happened. A very full week, lots of details. The number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Listener supported, counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the cows is constructive. Visit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com PayPal button is in the top right corner. Uh, We also have links right beneath the button for cash app. Venmo, uh, PayPal is linked there to, I believe, uh, the address for Cash App, cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Uh, much obliged for all of the investors who have kept the cows on the air for 12 plus years, uh, all throughout the COVID situation and through years of direct sabotage, like it has been, uh, even this week, just learning new ways of difficulties in terms of uh, obstructing access to the program, uh, whether it's disrupting the archives or disrupting people's ability to dial in uh, and or disrupting people's ability to invest. It's just been nonstop sabotage for 12 years, which is to be expected attempting to counter racism. Uh, Much obliged again for the folks who have invested Hope the cows has been worthy of your time and energy. My mail was tampered with this year. Whew. Hoping to get that uh, resolved, uh, but had to switch up my Amazon deliveries and all that. So hopefully that is taken care of and I can get my packages safely. Once again, you can feel free to visit the Amazon wish list. Uh, it's listed under Gus T. Renegade. 
much obliged again for folks who have invested. Uh, the number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I'll read the passage one more time. This is Dream Hampton again. Anybody, she said what she said. If you really are confused, you can email her and ask her to explain. Maybe I'll do that. I'll do that too. But since we heard it, just I did not quite understand. So I'm reading. This is the transcript at Democracy Now. So if it's inaccurate, I'm just reading what's on the page. I think they do have a disclaimer at the top that the transcript may not be correct. But this seems pretty close to what I heard, what we heard. Uh, So I'll give the full question. Goodman says, uh, if you could talk about for the first time young men coming forward who were abused as boys. Dream Hampton victim responds. I mean, I can't say that I was surprised given the reporting and the research that we did for surviving R. Kelly. I would hope that the gender of his victims, R. Kelly was a young male victim himself of sexual abuse and rape. I would hope that the gender of the victims wouldn't have an effect on whether or not R. Kelly's supporters and fans continue to support him. I would want to believe that the black girls matter, that black women matter. But I know that sometimes homophobia trumps our care for black children, you know, and this isn't just a black issue. I just happen to be a black woman who lives in a black community and works in a black community, writing about a genre artist who performs R&B mostly for black people. So that is who I'm caring about when I do this work. I was a little confused. So if folks have any thoughts what uh, this paragraph, what she meant in her response to this question from Amy Goodman. Uh, feel free to share. Uh, we'll get to the folks who dialed in. Also, if we have folks out there, because I know we have listeners, investors who are in the Michigan area, uh, if you were familiar with Dr. Robert E. Anderson, because I think that's important if he molested without ever even being arrested a thousand people probably more than that because I mean hey they say all the time a lot of victims don't come forward male or female so who knows Uh, but I mean a thousand people with university sanction for decades did folks know about this fellow Robert Anderson talk to your children about racism white supremacy and sexual predators Uh, If you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, that would be grand. If you're in a noisy environment, if you could uh, maybe get to a quieter area, that way you can share your thoughts. Uh, Use about five minutes. You can then mute your line again. Uh, If you have additional thoughts, just make sure everyone gets at least one chance to speak. Uh, Then you can join us back and share your views. Uh, If we can be mindful about metaphors, there were lots of them. And I mean, lots of secret society. Parroting. I thought that was interesting. They were saying that the black players who were vaccine hesitant were parroting things that they saw on YouTube. Uh, parrots are not people either. Animals. Uh, they, Fred Harris said that uh, President Johnson told him, uh, if you don't do right, I'm going to take my pocket knife and cut your penis off. Now, I don't know if that was a metaphor or if he meant it literally. It definitely was worth repeating, I thought. I don't know any other group of people who do spend this much time focused on the penis and chopping off someone's penis. They want to wag their finger at someone. I'm talking about uh, 
genital mutilation like the kings and queens of genital mutilation uh, but if you could refrain from using metaphors there were I can't even get to all of them there were so many of them uh, during the segment the tent pole in American democracy that was another one anyway uh, race soldiers will regularly use these sort of metaphors to practice racism dark place and or practice direct deception victims myself included a lot of times we are still learning we don't have logic we'll substitute an analogy of some sort if we can make an effort to be precise exact with our verbiage that would be great let's see first few folks who dialed in uh, with commentary uh, let's see mm-hmm. first few folks with a hand up proceed hello hello can I be see I heard both of you uh, I guess we'll get Irie first. I think I heard her first, and then I'll get the other caller. Okay, thank you. I'll make it quick. Um, I want people to know, uh, Hotep, good good night, everybody. I just want everybody to know, um, well, it's an opinion, BGQ. I suspect that... um, Sexual um, inappropriateness, abuse is uh, an intricate part, if not perhaps a requirement, in entering into so-called music, the business of music. Um, uh, Yeah, so a couple times, because I'm a musician, like over 15 years ago when I was really trying to be like showcased, I guess you could say, for my ability. Um, I was, uh, I had met this musician keyboardist and we kept up with each other. And then um, he propositioned me in exchange for helping me out, my career, to, you know, he wanted sex in exchange. And then later on, I met someone else that offered to help me, my career, in exchange for, he said, I, I need something. I either need something to know something um, uh, bad about you in exchange, or you have to do something in exchange for me to help you. And at the time, he was um, being showcased by a very, very, very famous produ- producer who is also rumored to either be gay or he's had a lot of different sexual relationships with different women and has a lot of kids. Um, And, of course, I didn't do it. But, you know, I just found it interesting that somewhere along the way, when I was pursuing that career, I was propositioned outright. Like, listen, if you give me sex, I will, I will produce you. I'll pay for studio time. Like the guy that the first guy propositioned me was like, I'll, I'll even let you live with me. And it could have very easily ended up into a bondage situation. Um, like what those young ladies went through. And if the young women are going through it, there's no doubt that young men are going through it. And I would suspect that the victim 
with the moniker Little Nas X is probably being done the same way. Um, especially considering, I don't know if he was really gay in the first place, but um, if he wasn't, he is now because that that happens in that industry. And it's because it just goes back to Greco-Roman behavior. Their entertainment is, you know, that sort of activity. Um, yeah, so anybody with children that are young adults that want to go into the music industry, they need to share this information with them and maybe even consider just being independent artists like I am and other friends are because if you want to go into Holly Weird, there's a reason they call it Holly Weird. And that's all I want to share. I'll meet my line. And I just I just feel really bad. That whole situation with um, those victims are, are, is terrible. But it's even more terrible to know that a doctor was at a university inappropriate abusing students and the student it took this long after the doctor died for there to be some semblance of, oh yeah, well we were wrong and, you know, now we're gonna figure out how to pay you for what happened to you repeatedly. It's 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 terroristic. Thank you. Monsters and monstrosities, that is what the system uh produces uh but hey this system also produces harvey weinstein woody allen woody that we just read like yeah if you're thinking about entertainment hollywood doing something that's so-called mainstream the book club that we just finished up that's about what you can expect all sorts of sexual debauchery and pervert harvey weinstein Woody Allen standard operating procedure it seems much about black self-respect Terry Crews even talked about that being fondled I mean males and females hey black self-respect Dr. Wilson used to talk about that all the time like hey they might offer you a million dollars five million dollars but you got to do you know black self-respect means hey You'll just have to keep that. There's some things are worth substantially more. Black self-respect. Dr. Welsing talked about that all the time. Bravo, uh, Irie. Incidentally, last week she told us about the train that derailed in Montana. That train was headed to Seattle. I was even thinking then because I've taken the train and we went through Montana. I was like, dang, is that the train that I was like? And it seems it could have been. Um, but it's, I think three people died. They had a number of other uh, fatalities. They're investigating what the problem is. And we just talked about no unnecessary travel. She emailed me or I think I emailed her back just when I found out because that train derailment was on the front page of the paper here in Seattle the next day. Uh, and so when I saw that, I emailed her. And so when I got her email Sunday night, she just said, yeah, no unnecessary travel. I keep saying that no unnecessary travel, plane, train, whatever it is. I got her email. I went to take the light rail just to go to my house. Nothing major. I step on the light rail. We don't move one inch. The conductor comes on and he says, sorry, folks, there's been an accident. Car was traveling and there was an accident on the train. And they give us more details. 
the driver was doing 60 in a zone. I think the speed, this is a residential area, so it's max like 30. He's going 60, he or she. It was raining. They hit a lamppost and knocked it over on the train tracks. They, when they gave us the full detail as to why we were delayed, uh, they ended by saying, uh, the people drive recklessly down there, so be careful if you get out and have to do any walking or even driving. That's been very common this year. No unnecessary travel. Very, very dangerous times. Uh, caller in the good old state of VA, the Coon Man. Much obliged for your patience. Proceed. Hello, Gus and callers and listeners. Haven't chatted in a while. Um, hope everyone is doing well. Um, I had an experience today, so I wanted to kind of see if you guys have um, some feedback on it. Um, but following the code of only asking questions about racism to white people, um, I had the opportunity to ask a white anthropologist how to end the global system of racism. That was my question. How do you end the global system of racism? And his short answer was that the only way to eliminate race is through, and here's the word he used, interbreeding. So, of course, you know, we know Dr. Welsing taught about this anyway, so this wasn't a new answer that he was giving. But the way he answered the question felt like he was saying that he's going to give an answer to the question that no one is going to tolerate, which basically means racism will never end because there's no way to massively interbreed the entire global population and create a race, so-called race, um, that, you know, doesn't have any distinctions, correct? And I interpreted it to mean, okay, so you're saying that the whole planet has to have sex with each other? Okay. Um, but that was my my thought on his answer. But what's your what's your thought? And I'd like to hear anybody else's uh, opinion on what he said. Um, is he practicing racism when he answers the question that way? Or is there any other way to look at his answer? And I'll end there. Well, uh, my view, uh, he is definitely practicing racism, white supremacy, um, interbreeding, even that word interbreeding, like, are you talking about animals, sheep, back to the cattle, the herd, like interbreeding, uh, I mean, how much interbreeding has to take place to end racism like if he means white people and non-white people having sexual intercourse like we've had lots and I mean we're in Virginia Thomas Jefferson for goodness sakes like it's been going on for a long time so how much of this has to happen to permanently solve this problem that I mean if that was going to be a follow up that would be it but I mean that's that's not even an answer for so many like what you said like white genetic annihilation like even to be a white person in Virginia where they shut down public schools part of their justification there's no way you're going to have little black boys in school with these little white girls and holding hands and all the rest I mean how in the world is there going to be interbreeding when that you know thought has been 
so intense and prevalent in white culture for years and years and years. Chopping off penises we were just talking about for years and years. That's even fascinating. (laughs) On the Kerner Commission, a white man is threatening another white man. If you don't do right by this, I'm going to cut off your penis with my pot. That is like, man, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. But interbreeding? That's just nonsense. Like, in my view, that's just further evidence. White people are not going to voluntarily solve this problem. Like, it could just be, hey, we could stop mistreating Negroes. How about that? No more coon man. No more racist jokes. No more trying to steal credit for things that other black people did in the workplace. Like, all that's done. Just going to practice justice. Like, they, they could have spent $80 million and solved this problem, like, what is that, almost 50 years ago. Eh. I think he's just practicing and an anthropologist, no less. Like, I think he was just practicing white supremacy, racism and Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Why does it consistently come back to the genital interbreeding? No less like uh, we just get enough Obamas. That'll solve the problem. If other people, if they have uh, thoughts on our question, our caller in Virginia, like this white anthropologist saying that interbreeding that's what will (laughs) get us off the plantation get us to universal man and universal woman Uh, if you have thoughts on that or your uh, own suggestions thoughts uh, line should be open proceed can I be hurt retired firefighter in Florida yes sir greetings Gus and greetings to everyone uh I uh, second the motion. Uh I would think that that white person uh gave a demonstration of white a white person practicing racism, white supremacy in a refined way. Um I'm not even sure on what interbreeding means. Uh he is responsible. Uh, if he's going to say something to give a concise meaning on what he's saying, that's third grade level in the understanding of the people that he's talking to. Uh, There is a saying that states that when a person tells you something about themselves, believe it. And uh, basically, he was uh, stating something that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And uh, that's basically him saying that uh, I am not going to help you solve this problem. Uh, There was another DCS session today. Uh, for the first time in about uh, at least over a year, we finally made a field trip. Uh, it was to someone's place of residence. Uh, the way I'm going to identify it is a non-white black male and female married couple uh, where uh, 
the male is a millionaire. Uh, the purpose for us going to his house, because we've been there before, is to give a larger variety to black males of things that they can do in order to uh, one day take care of themselves and a, and a care group that's called a family uh, sometimes other than sports and uh, entertainment such as rapping. Uh, there's a variety of things that can be done. Uh, he no, he takes us on a tour uh, because he does have uh, a likeness for uh, what is called exotic pets, uh, such as uh, different uh, types of lizards, uh, some small, uh, some more than small, bigger than small. <laughs> uh, and uh, he has tortoises in the yard, uh, what else? What else? What else? Oh, also, uh, he has uh, he has he has a couple of a couple of dogs. One is this huge Great Dane, uh, and uh, a uh, rather obese bulldog. I'm thinking it because I'm thinking the dog is that way is because he eats a lot. But I did notice that he does not have uh, any testicles. And I think that may have a lot to do with it also. I forgot what the term is called <laughs> on what happens when uh, uh, animals, uh, male animals' uh, uh, testicles are removed. Uh, but I think that may have done something about him uh, being a rather obese bulldog. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, the, the young fellas had a... a uh, a very uh, fun day. Also, uh, he spoke to them. He spoke to them ab about the subject matter that I, that I previously stated. And there were several other uh, non-white, all non-white black people who had different uh, uh, businesses, uh, talked about their own personal lives and how they basically reformed uh, their uh lives that would in some cases had some uh uh problems uh in one case uh person was uh incarcerated in greater confinement for several years and he uh basically uh reformed himself into a uh a a business uh another uh person uh in real estate uh, there was a crew of people who who uh, uh, who cleans roofs in South Florida. Uh, we've been to a South before, like I said, where dentists and doctors also have been present and have shared with the uh, the fellas. And uh, all in all, you know, it's it's a, it's a great thing because that certainly is needed. For, our, for especially uh, black boys to get more of an interest in something other than sports uh, and 
the entertainment that's called rapping. Uh, I I'm not going to I'm not going to cr- uh, criticize either one of them, but it definitely needs to uh, have a much more of a variety. And that's all our state right now. And uh, it was a pretty constructive day. Oh, one more thing. One more thing. Also, before we went, we do have time to do the normal things we do. We we do in the in the uh, in the uh, the time. So what I ask the older guys to stand up and either give me a definition to the term justice or describe it based on how you see it. And uh, I'll just say it's some interesting, uh, it was interesting conversation, interesting conversation to hear uh, what was on the minds and thoughts of younger people. That's all I have to say. Thank you. That is spectacular. Very awesome. All the work that you all have been doing. Mr. Clark and all the folks who've helped out with the program, uh, neutered with the canines. Oh, that's um, it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think the definition of uh, Negra is stingy thinking, lack of variety. Uh, don't, you know, have a, a wide view of the world. Very limited. No variety. Diversity, you might even right. say. That is. The very mm-hmm. definition of, you know, how we are supposed to think and behave. So, yeah, definitely try to expand the horizons, I think they say. Yeah, and I mean, hey, especially if you're going to be limited to entertainment, well, hey, Jerry Sandusky, Woody Allen, mm-hmm. Harvey Weinstein, Archie. They had to take advantage. Mm-hmm. 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 Absolutely. There are costs, rules to being in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Uh, other folks, much obliged caller in Florida. Uh, I'll give out the number again. 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate, uh, folks have uh, thoughts on the passage I read from Dream Hampton, thoughts on uh, our caller in Virginia. She was asking uh, about the white anthropologist and his uh, interbreeding recommendation uh, or other thoughts you want to share. Uh, line should be open. Proceed. Hello. Uh, our caller in Georgia. Yes, ma'am. Hello, good evening. Hope everyone's having the best evening they can have. Sorry I had to call back something with I don't know, internet thing. Um, with Miss Hampton, I don't know what she meant. I hope she's not implying that until they talked about black young black males that people start to or care I don't know what she meant. That's what I thought she meant. I don't know. I would have to ask her. Um, the anthropologist, I thought that was a good question to ask. Um, but I guess now I would have had, I guess, some follow-ups. I don't know if um, they were pressed for time. Not pressed for time, but you didn't have enough time to go into a large dialogue. Um, but, you know, interbreed, who's going to interbreed with who? Um, when is this interbreeding going to start? 
Are you going to have non-binary or binary? Because now we have multiple genders. What is this? And what about the interbreeding that's already happened that hasn't, there hasn't seemed to be any changes? So I guess that would have been three or four follow-ups I would have had. Again, now this is after the fact. I may have not had them on the spot, and you may have not had them on the spot. So I'm not trying to criticize, but, you know, you put it out there. And those are kind of the follow-ups I would have. Um, and we have to get definitely get rid of the word nigger. Um, everywhere it seems there's no kite. I'm here spick and all of that. I'm here chink. I'll hear those words, but they are holding on to nigger. In fact, the one country is the Croatia, Czech Republic, or something. They have a word nigger, and they're hardly any black people in unless they go to visit or they're expats. For real, um. That is their word, and they are not letting go of it. Um, they talk about us saying nigga with the A. That is their word, and they do not want to let go of it. And they, I mean, white people. Um, R. Kelly, I don't, again, I agree with Gus. I don't know what happened, but I do know when I read he got convicted of RICO charges, running a criminal enterprise. Um Anybody who's in music needs to, I guess, go to jail for Rico, especially men. Um, I saw too many of that behind the music show with all them white hair, what they call them, hair bands, with the heavy metal music about, oh, I'm going to get this girl, I'm going to get this girl. <clears throat> Excuse me. The rapper Ludacris, he seems like a fine young gentleman. No, I haven't heard any problems. But he made a song about how he had different holes and area codes. LL Cool J name means ladies love Cool James. I would change my name. They would call me Todd Smith forever. Um, I, I, he had a studio. I mean, be careful, Gus. They may call you having a Roman studio because you take your computer place to place. Be careful. You may be start. You may they might find some criminal enterprise something on you. Um, I thought that was a bit much. Um, not saying he didn't have any relation inappropriate relations, but to combine it into Rico just seems excessive. Because um, I guess he promised these young women or young people that they were going to be famous. I don't know. Plenty of people do that. Um, I've heard, actually I've heard, plenty of people do that. In fact, someone just talked about it on the, on the program this evening, how they were propositioned sexually. Um, it's, be careful. You know, we talk, I know we said when you play around with sex, the joke is on the offspring. It's not just the offspring, it's the community, it's not just an unwanted child. You know, you get stuck with this reputation, even if you haven't done anything. Like the poor man Brian Banks, his conviction was overturned. But we are, he is known as the man who was falsely accused of having sex with somebody. That will follow him for the rest of his life, even though it was overturned. The young lady admitted he didn't do anything. The same thing with Nate Parker, he was doing great. The young lady, she, I guess she passed away, killed herself. Oh, he was 
acquitted in the trial. Let it go. But that's going to follow him for the rest of your life. So, again, be careful. Make sure we're talking about this with our children. And, again, with the health, I think that's, that is very important. I know um, I'm an overweight person. I've been to the doctor. Not once has the doctor said, do you think about losing weight? I mean, I don't think that would be offensive if you're the doctor who should bring that up. Um, and the doctor is right. And also, one more story, my father, his wife, um, she gets a prescription at the Publix in South Carolina, and he said they've been counting the pills, and they sure had the pills, and he went to ask about it, and they said, well, what do you expect when the medicine is free? So, again, be careful at the pharmacy, pharmacist, and everything else as well. Thank you so much. That is so trifling. I have been to Publix. Like, it's been a minute. They don't have Publix out here, but have been. Uh, that is so trifling, though, with the Medicaid. And then, like, to have that sort of thing happen, and then they'll turn right around and, oh, God, these black people and their herd in the NBA. They're in this secret society, and they got their little conspiracy theories down this dark hole saying that you know the vaccine is going to get black people and all that like and then you just try to go get your medical hey hey hush up negro what do you expect when it's free get out of here <laughs> like dang like maybe i might have some thoughts about this seems like you all don't have my best interest at hand any other time like i should think it's going to be different now with this rona thing hmm Let's see. The uh, I wanted to make sure that I shared just with when they were discussed. I didn't see the uh, documentary, the surviving R. Kelly. We were in Virginia on the retreat. In fact, was with caller in Virginia. Didn't have cable. Thank goodness. Uh, but I didn't see it. Didn't make any effort to, to check it out. Uh, but I know they discussed context being included in the context of rape culture and providing some context for that to help explain uh, these allegations against R. Kelly, what he's been convicted of now. Uh, and I was like, hmm, I hope that they put this in the context of like Uncle Tom's Cabin documentary film on all the sexual debauchery that went on on the plantation. Like, I hope they put this in the context of like, <laughs> keep it Virginia. Thomas Jefferson or even we keep it Chicago Ed Berg because they said he was they were taking electrical prods and placing them on the genitals of black males like all of this sexual terrorism even lynchings really chopping off penises President Johnson what do you say uh, all of this sexual terrorism that has went on, been encouraged, bragged about keeping, you know, black people's testicles in a jar and that sort of thing, bragging about all that for years and years and having that just be, you know, standard everyday culture. We don't even think about it. Senator in South Carolina that raped the young black female like that's just standard operating procedure. I hope that's the context for this, because that would give like better context, both for, oh, yeah, R. Kelly was a victim of sexual abuse. And then he went out and did all these, you know, vile, terroristic acts against these young black females. And, uh, 
yeah young black females girls and older ladies uh i hope that is the context system of white supremacy does produce monsters and monstrosities for sure why we should be really really on our job about producing justice uh the number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate much obliged caller in Georgia she uh I said I was confused too about Dream Hampton's passage and hey don't be a spectator always best to ask so I will email and see if she can maybe give additional details to answer my question if I get a response I will share uh but I thought that you know what you were saying like it seemed like that could have been what she was saying about some sort of implication about maybe black people being homophobic uh and that meaning more to them uh but I was not I wasn't sure I said I need more detail cuz I didn't really I didn't really understand uh other folks uh if you have thoughts observations uh from the past week line should be open feel free Abby Hurt uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, for our caller that just dialed in, are you close to the Michigan area? You don't have to answer if you don't want to divulge, but. Yes, I'm in Michigan. Okay. Do you know of Robert Anderson? I never heard of him before until this came out. I, I'm a U of M grad. Oh, wow. And um, never heard heard anything about him but the other gentleman, the one at Michigan State. You know, his case came up several years ago and it's been ongoing, but with this new guy, no. <laughs> but, but now, is this a pattern? Should we investigate all the programs at all these schools? Because, you know, these white males may be up to something no good, you know? Or should we just you know, pretend that the, these two cases probably weren't related and, you know, just a coincidence. So, I don't know. Jerry Sandusky is, it's not just two. Jerry Sandusky isn't that long ago. Penn State, look at how Penn State rebounded. Like their football team is back and glorious and they act like that okay. never even happened. Like that was 2011. And that was the exact same thing. Raping, and that was young boys. Uh, he was going, I mean, the worst of the, we'll talk about throwaway children. And it went on for years, decades, just like Robert Anderson. And in fact, it even got to a prosecuting attorney. They went, investigated, and no charges filed. And it continued to go on for years and ye- decades exact same so it's at least three and Syracuse the same thing came out at Syracuse University uh, where their ba- a white person got fired from the basketball team uh, for Milan this was boys again so that's at least four then that's uh, all recent that's not even including the scandal at uh, Notre Dame where they had a white woman on staff she was tutoring some of the black football players and she was uh, manipulating them, the tacky phrasing, blackmailing them into having sex, I believe, with like her daughter 
uh, in order, it, I have to get the exact word, but I mean, it seems like it's not just one or two or three. It seems like this might be kind of a widespread cultural thing. Well, I'm very concerned. I think we need to get a, whatever it is, a panel together, have it investigated, see what we can do. How can we remedy this? Should these victims be compensated? I mean, can we, or, or do we just pretend it's not happening until the next one pops up? I don't know. Interesting. And, you know, how to, and it's interesting that they can do these things and have this pattern and no one notices, right? And all these experts and people that are constantly on TV talking. So, you know, regarding Dream Hampton, um, I think she was dodging. That question kind of terrified her. And so she just started mumbling to try to avoid the answer because, you know, you're, you're stepping into, you know, what these, you know, white males who have all the power in the world you know, and it's dangerous. It's dangerous for anybody in the public anywhere. So, and and, um, and that actually, the, the other thing as far as, you know, the interbreeding, solving the problem with racism, but when you consider that white people are only 10% of the world's population, on one hand, we would get rid of all of them, on the other hand, I don't think they would go for it. <laughs> so, but, so he may have been just, you know, being, you know, trying to be funny or something when he said that. But, but I, I don't think they would seriously uh, give that a try because right now, you know, if, if you if you'll notice, they, you know, at least in in my area in California. You know, young white women, four or five kids, double strollers everywhere. You know, they're not they're not backing off having children. So, so those white. are my thoughts. Hmm. I'm sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. My my apologies. No, I'm I'm I think I'm done. <laughs> Right on. The coach at Syracuse, I try to strive for accuracy. That's what I say. Make sure I'm not just talking. The coach at Syracuse, uh, who was terminated over these charges of sexual abuse uh, of young boys, uh, Bernie Fine. Uh, folks can check that out. But the Notre Dame, just go back because some of this is, uh, this is recent. This is not ancient history. Uh, so this is from. Slate.com, there are numerous reports. We played this on the compensatory call-in way back. Notre Dame fires tutor accused of asking black students to have sex with her daughter. 
I'll just read a little bit. Notre Dame has fired a white tutor who is accused in a lawsuit of pressuring black students, including student athletes, to have sex with her daughter. A report in USA Today says the woman was dismissed for violating the university's sexual and discriminatory harassment policy. The suit was filed by a black male student. According to the suit, the employee began providing academic help to the male student this past spring and immediately initiated, directed, and coordinated a sexually and racially motivated, inappropriate, and demeaning relationship between the student and her daughter. I will stop there, but it goes into more detail. But that was at Notre Dame 2015, Jerry Sandusky, all the everything. Uh, he was arrested 2011 when it became a big deal. Uh, the situation, Robert Anderson, he worked there until 2003, but this just became a, a public discussion over the past, uh, pretty recent, within the last like year and a half or so. Uh, so that is the culture. So the woman she lost her job. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Is it no? The woman just lost her job. That was it. Uh, we'll have to see. I have to uh, see if she actually was prosecuted. Did she get charged criminally? Uh, for Because this would seem like this would be a criminal accusation. Let's see. If folks give me a moment, I'll go to uh, yeah, see if we can get her name to see if there were any criminal charges filed against her. Even that's interesting because, yeah, the two reports that I've looked at, at least the first two that I've uh, read, they don't have her name mentioned, which is also a major component of white supremacy racism where racists get anonymity. All those lynching photos that they have where no white people are named, that is standard operating procedure. Even uh, Ted Wafer, a lot of times when they have these enforcement officers, Ted Wafer wasn't even an enforcement official. Uh, he killed Renisha McBride. It took a while before they even identified him. But yeah, the first two reports that I've seen, they do not identify her by name, uh, which would lead me to believe she, she probably has not been criminally charged because they normally uh, identify. They just say that this is a white woman who's uh, who's been charged in this civil suit. And so maybe they're just trying to, you know, they they like to try to sweep it under the rug, too. They don't want it to be on the, you know, they don't make it a big news item. So, you know, because, you know, they're such good people. This is an anomaly, not a trend or anything. Yeah, yeah. Sweeping under the rug, that is a metaphor, but yes. Very, very common. Uh, and this story, much like Robert Anderson, did not get a lot of attention. You know, I'm not something like R. Kelly. That should get attention. Monsters and monstrosities mm-hmm. in the system of white supremacy. But like, wow, Robert Anderson, like that should be democracy now spent 20 minutes on R. Kelly. That's fine. OK. They never said one word about Robert Anderson hail to the victors that's the fight song for the University of Michigan hail to the victors not one word and this is like university sanquished what I talk about all the time uh, how white people they conceal this is aiding and abetting a sexual predator the University of Michigan talk about protection 
this is an institution that has like billion dollar endowments who knows what type of salary he got in pension for you know all those decades hail to the victors indeed Uh, indeed even with R. Kelly um, I think too they don't want to discuss the part about him being abused they you know that's pretty interesting too because I think had he been another you know race that would have been a highlight poor man he couldn't help it his poor life he he tried to redeem himself but you know he had all these demons whatever you know thousands of excuses you know but I'm not sad he's gone you know it's, I think he's you know finally seeing justice because I don't think he would stop his the way his mind is warped you know he would never stop you know even when he got away you know with that that what was it a video of him abusing a child he didn't stop so let's see um, let's nab some of the other folks in the time we have. Uh, any of the other folks that we missed totally, if you have comments here, you want to make sure you get in. Lon should be open. Proceed. Green, oh. Uh, let's see. We'll get Henry in Chicago, and then we'll nab our other caller as well. All right. Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, in regards to R. Kelly, you know, him being from Chicago, uh, another case that um, has been buried here and which was a well-known case here in Chicago is the case of uh, one Daniel McCormick, a white priest who was able to uh, abuse, sexually abuse, uh, children at four different parishes here in Chicago, and the parishes predominantly attended by non-white black people. So you got a priest who was moved around to four different parishes, all black parishes, and was able to sexually abuse uh, a lot of uh, black black boys uh, within these parishes in a span of a decade because he was a priest. Uh, in the Chicago Archdiocese, you know, in the late 80s and, er- and all through the 90s. Um, I think he was finally convicted and put to jail in like 2007, I think. Uh, so, yeah, um, you know, many people would probably think of R. Kelly when you think of Chicago and and uh, and, and sexual abuse, but rarely would somebody think about Daniel McCormick. Um uh, sexual predator of black boys, which uh, which goes to that statement that you read about, uh, I can't think of the, the woman's name that you was uh, reading from NPR. Uh, I, too, am confused about the whole statement, but if I was to take a guess at it, uh, I'm thinking she may, uh, there must be something with, uh, you know, maybe... Many people don't think about black boys being victims of sexual abuse. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, uh, it sounds like a little mis- uh, misandry 
you know, within it. But, you know, like I said, I might be wrong about that. Um, the, uh, the one comment about, uh, the, the anthropologist talking about interbreeding, um, they, uh, to, uh, I guess eliminate the system of, uh, white supremacy kind of reminds me of Thomas Jefferson, uh, within his own papers. Uh, Thomas Jefferson thought about how many generations it would take, uh, through interbreeding to get rid of Negro blood. So, uh, that is a old white supremacist tactic. Uh, this so-called interbreeding, uh, reminds me of that. Uh, and also too, today, uh, an Illinois state trooper, a non-white black male, uh, committed suicide. And, uh, interesting story because at first the press was not releasing it as a suicide. Um, a non-white black Illinois state trooper took his own life uh, on the expressway. So, um, and there's still kind of about, uh, doubts about that as well. So I find that pretty interesting uh, that they finally released it today as a suicide because because uh, the, the incident happened yesterday, yesterday afternoon. So, um, but um, that's all I have on me in my life. Dan Ryan, the state trooper, ruled a suicide. Black male can do some research uh, to see suicide. That's very common incidents of white terrorism. Sandra Bland, many others, many, 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 many. But uh, troop state trooper Dan Ryan, uh, our caller, last four digits one one five nine. Do you have commentary? Well, greetings, guys. Greetings, um, callers and listeners. Yeah, I have um, a couple of um, terroristic um, stories to uh, report um, that I don't know if um, folks may um, know about. Um, the first one is um, about uh, white supremacist Ben John. I'm just going to read um, from the article from The Guardian. <laughs> and, it, and it says, a former student who downloaded almost 70,000 white supremacist documents and bomb-making Instructions has avoided a prison sentence by the skin of his teeth after being told to read classic literature by Dickens, Austin, Shakespeare, and Hardy. Ben John, 21, from Lincoln, a former student at Dumontford University in Leicester, has to return to court every four months to be tested on his reading. Judge Timothy Spencer QC said he also sentenced him to a suspended two-year imprisonment plus a further two-year license. John was identified as a terrorist days after his 18th birthday and was referred to the PREVENT program but continued to download repellent right-wing documents, the Leicester Mercury reported. He also wrote a letter raging against gay people, immigrants, and liberals. And this is articles from um, last month of August. And I have a more recent um, example of awesome terroristic um, white power. And this just comes from the wireless estimator. And it says here, um, this, this white supremacist name is Victor Schicksnader. And it says, um, 
Um, uh, it says um, a bail bond was denied last Wednesday for a man accused of planting an explosive device at an AT&T digital transmission site in Jefferson Davis County. I'm just going to read um, a quote from him. He says um, he, he also stated to agents prior to his firing while at work, he told others, if I get one more thing on my plate, I'm going to go postal. And it's really interesting. The explosive he used is actually a, a, a firework. He used a firework to cause um, so much damage. And the explosive firework is called donkey balls. Um, so, yeah, that, that's interesting. And um, awesome terroristic white power. Um, I don't know any black male who has ever got sentenced anywhere on the planet, especially across the pond, to read books and not go to prison. But Ben John white supremacists attempting to um to um build um weapons explosives it looks like but he's sentenced to um read books white power awesome white power that'll be my line crazy wow um donkey balls white genetic annihilation Rape culture, that right there. Donkey balls. Uh, did we miss anybody? We got everybody? Anyone we missed totally? May I be heard? Caller in Florida? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings uh, to just the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, I was thinking about the, the term that was involved with the question in a breeding, I, I do think that there's a there's a racism being practiced in that in the, the use of that term, like black people are being uh, referred to as, I guess the term would be subhuman or not um, being qualified as being a human being uh, in comparison to them being white. So um, that's that's my view on that, and the uh, the person in the I think I was the black female in the democracy now um, uh, audio where she was mentioning or she was responding to the uh, I guess the possibility of a, a male victim, a, a, you know, a little boy. You know, I, I was thinking about that as well, like how how does that go to talking about homophobia? And I just think that there are times where in the media where black people are associated with being um, anti-gay or uh, disliking gay people or homophobic, because I just, I, I can't make any connection and it is confusing to how, like how, how does that make black people, or as he terms the uh, black community, you know, I know VGQ and everything, but just giving it some deep thought, um, you know, that didn't come up, you know, of course, when the victims are uh, female, but when it came up to uh, the question of the, the victims being male, uh, I just don't, I, I can't make a connection on, like, where have people um, made those comments about R. Kelly? to say that uh, black people 
at large are homophobic. At least that's how I'm thinking of it. Um, uh, in terms of the, I, like, I was thinking about a metaphor where the person, I think that was a victim of the the person at Michigan, uh, he made a comparison about a wrestling match. And he said, like, I've lost some matches and I won some. And, you know, I would just move on or something like that, he said. And he made that a comparison to this person, I guess, making an apology. And I just didn't think, you know, like those were two things to make an accurate comparison to. Um, and the victim, I think that was a cheerleader that was called a nigger. And I can tell that uh, white supremacy was being practiced when they were saying, well, um, we didn't really get any, we didn't hear of anything. We're still investigating. See, they'll make it seem like they're taking it seriously and they'll still um, mitigate the seriousness of uh, a victim being mistreated. So uh, they're definitely using white power in that regard. And I notice how in the audio they'll say how Michigan gave out a statement. They they ain't naming any people. They didn't name any individuals, you know. Like I noticed that'll be used in language. You know, the university gave a statement. Um and uh just one last thing was the here locally there was like I mentioned about how there was some um bomb threats and they did like a a report and they walked two miners out in handcuffs. So one was the, the first person that came out was male. It looked like the person might've had a white parent and a non-white parent. And then the second person that they walked out, you know, law enforcement walked out in front of the cameras. This person had a black, um, mask over her head and I could just see the blonde hair and the pale skin. So anonymity, like I thought of that word too. Um, they didn't want to disclose her identity, but the other guy, he was, uh, he was shown in front of the camera. So I just wanted to speak on those things and, and that's all I had to say. Thank you. That's so consistent. Don't want to embarrass white woman in front of her family and friends and all of that she gets covered black people ah get out there parade them yes do the perp walk standard operating procedure uh, with the University of Mi uh, Michigan that right there the university gave a statement now that gets said all the time now that anthropomorphize ten dollar word that they put on that as opposed to somebody that's their job they have a PR person was it the president like group of people sat down together and wrote this and they just issued this on behalf of the university University of Michigan is huge by the way like tens of thousands of people um, yeah they gave a statement about all of this mm. and 
do recommend about those metaphors. Yeah, the victim, and he was one of the sex abuse victims. We're talking about his wrestling career in comparison to the university taking responsibility. Yes, not quite the same thing. That's why I do recommend be mindful of those metaphors. Uh, incidentally, it was not lost on Gus T, uh, history major, uh, where our previous caller, or wait a minute, the caller before that, where he shared, uh, oh, I had it right the first time, previous caller, he dialed in California, he was saying that the fella had said, I've got so much on my plate, I'm going to go postal. Uh, this was in Jefferson Davis County. It was the uh, president of the Confederacy. Like, uh, take forever to remove all the names and monuments and all the rest. As I sit here in Washington State, uh, my or yards really from the University of Washington campus. Hmm. We will wrap it up for this week's compensatory call in. Uh, I'm not sure about the book club. Uh, we're supposed to be doing Shaft next. Um, trying to see. I thought we had two separate narrators, but I'm not sure. We have any other folks just uh, like a backup. Uh, what is it? Uh, Tidyman. I forget his first name on there. And then as soon as we go off the air, it comes to me immediately. Earl, is it Earl Tidyman? Something Tidyman. Anyone. White man wrote Shaft. It's the 50 year anniversary. Man, we just read Woody. Now we could read Shaft. Great follow. Uh, but we'll have to see uh, if our narrators are available or if we have any other folks who want to read Shaft. I think it is Earl Tidyman uh, who actually wrote the book that the whole franchise is based on. Homoeroticism. Talk about the culture that produced R. Kelly like man. Uh, so if you have any folks you have time to spare, don't mind narrating. Drop an email until justice at gmail dot com. Uh, with that, much obliged for everyone participating. I will email Dream Hampton see if we can get clarification because uh, I was confused. I wouldn't, couldn't really grasp what she was saying. If I get a response, I will share. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Uh, be constructive moving into autumn. I guess I'll say before we conclude, they were talking about with uh, getting outside, that that's good for your health as well, getting some sunshine. Whew. I've talked about going to the beach. I was at the beach yesterday. So thankful. It was awesome. I ran to the beach as soon as the program ended. Made a fire at the beach. So relaxing. Like if you can get outside, do things that uh, just get you in nature, get you some sunlight. You can get some exercise. Way better than being in front of the television and watching any of that garbage. Like you can do Netflix anytime, any place like Get away from the screen, get out, enjoy, get some fresh air. It is wonderful for you, wonderful for your health, mental health, physical health, uh, great for your lungs. Get some breathing in. Go do a fire at the beach. Uh, with that, we'll wrap things up. Uh, no unnecessary traveling. They are reckless. Uh, planes, trains, automobiles, you name it. Dangers abound. Uh, if you are going out, be very alert of your surroundings. This is not a time to be in confrontations uh, with strangers, even verbal confrontations. You should be thinking this person could be armed. If you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die, exit. That's what you should be thinking. Sobriety would be best. All of that said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient 
with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. No name-calling. Eat well. Use logic. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Hey, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.